Warning, this podcast contains spoilers for the 1982 film Blade Runner. I, I mean, like, if you haven't seen Blade Runner, legitimately go see it. Gonna find my baby, gonna hold her tight, gonna grab some afternoon delight. Ooh, we're in San Diego, baby. That's right, my name is Jason Concepcion. Welcome to X-Ray Vision, the crooked podcast, where we dive deep to your favorite shows, movies, comics, and comic book conventions. That's right, we're in San Diego today. Rosie, how's San Diego treating you? Hot. But exciting. It's nice to be back. It is great to be back. Uh, we'll talk uh, a little bit about what we're what we're doing here in San Diego in a bit. But first off, here's what you can expect in today's action-packed episode. On the previously on, we will talk about Rosie's Den of Geek story coming up. Upcoming big, big-time Den of Geek story. And we'll be uh, previewing some of the events of Comic-Con in the airlock. The winner of our summer of 1982 movie, selected by you, the listeners of X-Ray Vision. It is Blade Runner. Final cut version. We'll be talking about the final cut version, also the the, uh, the various other cuts, history of the movie, our thoughts on the movie, and our thoughts on some of the, uh, the movies, the other movies from 82 that did not win in the hive mind. Rosie's got a fantastic interview with Miss Marvel showrunner Bisha Ali which is super cool. In The Nerd Out, listener tells us about RuPaul's Drag Race. And of course, if you want to jump around, check out the timestamps in the show notes. It's all there for you. All the information is there for you. And joining me right now from San Diego, from a different hotel in San Diego somewhere. (laughs) It's 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 safe. COVID safety, baby. (laughs) That's right. She is the number one comic book historian, the expert of all things Godzilla, Kung Fu movies, and more. She's the great Rosie Knight. Rosie, how are you? Oh, that's always love. That's that's every week. It's like if I'm feeling down, just wait for you to introduce me. <laughs> I'll have to what's, swap, so I'll be doing it to you soon. The what's unbelievable going on? What's Jason. Going on? What, what's going on? What's, what's, uh, what are you doing? Uh, what do you got lined up for oh, Comic-Con? Well, what are you looking forward to? I will be. So I've got one. I, I, I'm on my record lowest panels ever this year, which is nice because my first year back to San Diego yeah. since 2019. Uh, I'm going to be on a Godzilla panel called Godzilla king of the comic book monsters which when you listen to it will be on today on friday 4 till 5 p.m in room four going to be talking about my godzilla comic lots of other godzilla comics and just a bunch of godzilla writers talking about making godzilla comics so that'll be very cool i'm also going to be doing a lot of hosting den of geek has a fancy suite where we'll be doing interviews Ooh. so i'll be doing some interviews which you'll be able to check out on their youtube and also my my cover story that you mentioned which is a big black adam cover story for den of geek magazine that's a nice reason to be here because they're just giving it out everywhere so everyone will be able to read that and that's that'll be really cool. cool what are you doing here what am i doing here i uh have to interview the uh, writer of many things, including the A Song of Ice and Fire series, George R. R. Martin on ah, Friday, which is going to so be really exciting. fun. And I'm just, I'm not coming out of my hotel. My yeah. ultimate, ultimate, ultimate fear 
is somehow being implicated in George R. R. Martin <gasps> contracting COVID. So I'm like Absolutely sitting not. in my room testing every day and not fucking coming out until I do that. And I've got to do a bunch of other interviews with some uh, cast from House of the Dragon. And then I'm doing the uh, the House of the Dragon panel in Hall H on ah! Saturday, which is I, I don't get nervous. I'm not a I literally never get nervous about about live events, about recording, about going up on stage, about any stuff. I don't care. I'm like, a. I have no, for, I've never been the type of person mm-hmm. who forever reason gets nervous. I get excited, but I don't get, I get keyed up, but I never, I'm like, oh shit. <laughs> this time I'm like, I'm legitimately like, I need to carve out like Friday yeah. night and Saturday morning and just like drill down on names, on mm-hmm. putting names to faces, on character names, on questions I'm going to say. Now, the thing that I keep telling myself is nobody's there to see me. They don't care. <laughs> nobody cares if I li- I could die up there and nobody would care. Nobody no, is there. There'll be some X-ray vision fans there, definitely. Nobody gives a shit. It's nice to feel the... <laughs> To be the moderator is a is a is a hard balance between being interesting but not being too interesting and making sure that everyone who is actually there to talk gets to talk. The worst thing is if you have a moderator who just talks too much. Like everyone knows the rules. No, you're gonna be great. And also, I mean, congratulations, because Hall H, that's the big one. Like anyone everyone as our listeners will know, that's like the place. To announce something, to moderate something. I mean, that's huge. It is. Uh, I'm I'm peeing a little in my pants. <laughs> I'm dead serious. This is I have not felt this way in a long time. So I'm I'm just gonna uh, research my way out of it. And then I've yeah, got you're that. Gonna kill it. And then after that, uh, just interviews and stuff. And then I'm gonna. Uh, and then I'm gonna get in a car and go back to uh, Los Angeles. And then I'm gonna. Uh, fly to the uh, rap party for uh, Primo, the TV show hey. that uh, we're filming with Chase Rano. And so hopefully, somehow, some way, we just all avoid COVID. I believe right in now. you. No, no, no. I feel you. We, I can see your <laughs> hotel room. You can see my hotel room. Both nice hotels, both close to the convention center. I believe we can do it. Um, I usually love Comic-Con is like one of my favorite things in the world. When I was a kid, I dreamed of going here. And I used to come every year and all my friends are on Artist Alley and I would walk around and this is the first place I ever met Grant Morrison. This is the first place I ever met the Hernandez brothers. But this year I'm reining it in. I'm hotel room. I'm watching things. (laughs) I'm writing. I'm just, it can't, we can't risk it. It's not worth it. Also, I'm going to a, I've got a screening on Monday, like this wild screening for Nope. Uh, the new Jordan oh. Peele movie. And it's like at a ranch and there's going to be like I, riding a horse. And I'm what? like, I can, yeah, I was like, Wait I can. Wait a second. Where is it? Where are they doing this? It's, like in, in, the valley it's in like a ranch somewhere. Yeah, you have to get like a, tro- you have to get like a trolley out there. Like, I guess they're going <laughs> to, people are going to be able to pay for it. But they were like, do you want to come? And taking my friend, my amazing friend, James, who's also a great comics writer. And, um. Yeah, so I'm like, that's my, I can't get sick. That's my Primo's rap party. Yeah. I'm like, I can't miss it. We've both got reasons to stay safe. We're aside from like stay. our own health. <laughs> just trying to avoid it. Okay, up next. Some Comic-Con predictions and more on the previously on segment. Be right back. This week on Keep It, writer and self-proclaimed rom-commissure... 
Bolu Babalola is guest hosting. Listen in for her thoughts on Lizzo's new album and everything that is Benefer 2.0. Plus, they'll be joined by singer Haley Kiyoko. I love Haley Kiyoko. She's fucking great. Listen to the new episode of Keep It Every Wednesday wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. First on Previously On, Rosie, let's clear the lane and let's get you to talk about this really huge cover story uh, that you're doing over at Den of Geek that they are just promoting the shit out of, which is awesome. Yeah, it's it's been very wild. So um, I, I love Den of Geek. I've written there a lot. My main editors, Mike and Chris, really great. And Mike reached out to me and was like, hey, I've got this thing. I can't tell you what it is. Do you want to do it? He was like, I think you want to do I it. And I was like, what? yeah, I mean, probably. And uh, and I wasn't sure. I was like, is it Mission Impossible? Like, what could be this secretive? And then, you know, eventually I found out it was um, for Black Adam. And I went to Warner Brothers, to the studio lot. And I got to sit down with Dwayne Johnson and interview wow. him one-on-one. He is exactly as incredible as you think he would be. Like, you meet him and you're just like, wow, this is, I know why you're the rock. <laughs> like, you are just the greatest, <laughs> nicest. He puts you on an equal footing. Like, the conversation was really great. I came out of it feeling very good. And then I also got to interview um, all four members of the JSA. So, Whoa! yeah, which is, like, really wild because I, I love Aldous Hodge, who plays Hawkman. He was great, that interviews. So it's a big profile feature of, Dwayne and the information about like making the movie, the 15 journey, 15 year journey to make the movie. And then there's four Q and A's, one without his Hodge who plays Hawkman. I love him. I interviewed him for the Invisible Man. Just great. And um, and then Quintessa Swindell, who plays Cyclone, who's just one of the coolest Ooh. people you'll ever meet. Uh, Noah Centineo, uh, who plays yeah. Adam Smasher, who was on vacation. So we had to do it a little bit of a different way. And then I actually got to interview Pierce Brosnan, who played <laughs> Dr. Shit. Fate. So that was the one where I was just like, oh, my God. So, yeah. And it's when this episode comes out, it will be out. It comes out on Thursday at San Diego. It's free at San Diego Comic-Con. Anyone can just pick up them. They give them out outside everywhere. You'll see Dwayne on the front looking really cool. Um, and if you're not a San Diego they actually stock them at a lot of free comic book shops, uh, a lot of comic book shops for free. You can check That's online awesome. to see if your comic shop uh, lists them. And if you do want to definitely get one, you can you can join the mailing list where I think it's $9.99 a month and you get four issues a year. I usually write like one thing at least in in most issues. So, But yeah, it's really cool and, and it's really surreal. But I'm really excited. I love the JSA. So it was nice to get to nerd out about them. And, and Dwayne really loves the JSA. He was... Really? Oh, my God. It was actually... He loves Black Adam. Yeah. Like, that's like his connection. But he just wanted to know. He's like, like, why... What did I feel like as someone who like... Because I've written a lot about the JSA and a lot of like history yeah. about them. And and he just really wanted to know, like, did I... Had I wondered, like, why the JSA hadn't had a movie before. And it's like, yes, like often, <laughs> actually. So it's it really great to meet someone who's just so passionate about it. And and then for it to be coming out of San Diego, which obviously is so important to us. And, and then, you know, on Saturday, that's all the big stuff. Your panel, uh, Dwayne is doing a big All Hall H panel for Black Adam and obviously the Marvel panel. The so, Marvel panel where we expect big things to go off. Big things happening. Big things happening, folks. Let's go there next. Uh, Screen Rant had some interesting uh, details about what to expect, perhaps, 
from the MCU at their uh, up their upcoming panel. Uh, their last Marvel's last Comic Con panel was. 2019. They've mm-hmm. been doing their D23 stuff. Uh, their panel will uh, first panel is on Friday uh, the 22nd. So when by the time you're hearing this, it's probably happened, and that's the panel that's going to cover uh, animation. Uh, with Brad Winderbaum, who has kind of worked his way up uh, through Marvel from uh, working on the movies to now uh, EPing on. Uh, almost everything they do, certainly on the TV side, uh, we expect looks at X-Men 97. Mm -hmm. Very exciting. That's definitely going to be the big thing for that panel. And I think, like, we might get a little hint at how much X-Men 97 is going to be canon and important to the mutants in the MCU, because I think that seems to be where they're going with it. I, I completely agree. I've been thinking about this actually since the last time we uh, we all got together and, and spoke in a meeting. It really feels like X Men ninety seven is there to to number one kind of establish mm-hmm. the X Men mm-hmm. as a team in people's minds. We haven't they haven't certainly have not appeared in the MCU as of yet, and it's been a number of years since the last uh, X movie, uh, which maybe we should, uh, you know. It wasn't great. You know what? It wasn't great. Look, well, just, I liked some of it. Look, it wasn't truth great. Is, yeah. <laughs> X-Men movies, that's a that's a complex thing. And I would I'm very excited to see I've seen every X-Men movie many, many times. Yes. But I'm excited to see a new iteration because I think in hindsight a lot of the problems that the later X-Men movies have are there is a direct direct lineage to the whole way that 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 property was treated. So I think it's going to be really exciting. And I think it's, I think something that's really cool about this X-Men 97 thing, this is a great example of listening to what has kept your fandom alive. Yeah. Fans of this cartoon are like one of the most intense, beloved fandoms. This cartoon shaped so many lives, so many people's love of the X-Men, introduced so many people to Marvel Comics. And I really love that this is one of the ways that Disney is deciding and Marvel is deciding to bring back the X-Men into the fold after the the Fox ownership or, or Fox uh, license, I should say. Uh, we should also expect to see on this uh, from this Friday panel uh, some Marvel Zombies stuff. Uh, certainly uh, maybe peeks into what if season two mm-hmm. and more. And then, of course, on Saturday, uh, that's the, the big, big one. We'll stuff. talk about it next. That's the big stuff. Uh, we'll, we will recap all of this stuff on our next episode, but almost guaranteed we're going to get first looks at uh, Wakanda Forever, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, Guardians of the Galaxy 3, uh, maybe the holiday special, perhaps Blade, Maybe we'll see Mahershala in the full blade costume. Ah, I would love that with the long jacket. Perhaps. Now, here's where we get a little bit, uh, you know, theorizy. Are we gonna? Are we gonna have any announcements about the Fantastic Four? Are we gonna have any announcements mm-hmm. about the mutants? Let's see. Speaking of the mutants, uh, this Wednesday, Deadline uh, listed the mutants. Mm-hmm. As the title of the potential upcoming X-Men movie and listed it as among the things that we are likely to see in Hall H. So uh, the quote from Deadline, after listing all the stuff that we just said, 
closes with, quote, there's still some stuff we haven't seen, specifically the Fantastic Four reboot, Mahershala Ali in Blade, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, The Marvels, and The Mutants. I, uh, what do you think, what are your, what is your initial reaction to The Mutants? First of all, I know that it's hard to write up news, but I like that they called, they said Mahershala Ali in The Blade. I would like to see that. The Blade, yeah. The Blade. Um, yeah. So, I think this is very interesting. I I don't know if I necessarily think... I think it would be very bold if they made their first X-Men movie not with the word the X-Men in it, with the words... Mm-hmm. I, I think the mutants, like um, Eric at Nerdist, who's just so brilliant, we were talking about earlier, and he made a really good point where he was like, this sounds like it could be a TV show that establishes right. the world of the mutants before we see them right. form the X-Men. Now, I would love a movie called The Mutants where it's pre the X-Men forming. I think that'd be really yeah. brave. And then the X-Men movie is, you know, the third, fourth MCU style Avengers type movie. I don't know. The X-Men brand is like so powerful. I think it would be really bold though. And I would like it. I, I would like it. Just it, There's so many things it could mean. Like, is it a Morlocks movie? Like, right. is it a New Mutants Hellfire movie, Club, but a real New Mutants like, movie? Is it a Hellfire yeah. Club movie? Is it a, you know, my dream has long been like a, um, which will surprise nobody listening to this, but but a Charles Xavier School for Gifted Youngers focused, but like focused on the kids while the adults are out fighting or the older students and kind of focusing on them and, and how they train and how they, you know, who they ship and all that kind of like fun teenage drama. But with the background of the X-Men, I would love to see something like that. I also think, you know, the mutants, like we said, we're introducing all these different things, the Eternals, the clandestine, Talo, uh, more about Carmitage. Maybe the mutants is going to introduce us to that secret world that we've been talking Mm. about, where it's like, this is the mutants because this is the world that they've been living in. I think that could be very interesting. What do you think? I... My initial reaction was, I wonder if this is true, I wonder if Marvel is going for a kind of Mm Avengers-style structure Mm -hmm. in which we have various movies that introduce these characters. So the mutants would introduce, you know, uh, I'm just making stuff up now, but Scott Summers and Gene... Mm -hmm. Uh, as kids, maybe after they've just joined this secretive upstate New York um, academy for young hidden mutants or maybe right amazing. before or something like that. And then we build towards an mm-hmm. X-Men team-up movie where the X-Men movies are the team-up movies. Yeah. And then the mutants and the other movies like that are the kind of standalone. I think that sounds perfect. Wolverine, Charles Xavier, Magneto, Storm movies where they have their own like kind of like cast of characters with their own solo movies and then everybody teams up in in the X-Men. I wonder if if this is a hint that they could be going that way. I think that makes a lot of sense because if we look at the X-Men comics that we love, especially like that Chris Claremont run that we're always talking about, it's all about that long lead slow burn storytelling 
which was very much that original phase one MCU stuff. So, you know, the chance to meet these characters in their own different worlds and spaces and see them come together slowly over time in a way that feels earned and learn about how, who gets picked for the team. You know, the things like, I'd love to see that fight between, you know, Scott and Storm about who becomes head teacher. Like there's so many good things you could do if you take your time with it. And it's not just like, Here's the original five and they have powers and the government doesn't like them. I think Kevin is, he is ambitious enough and has enough money and creative control that I would really like to see them do something like that where they take, they understand that this is the next 20 years of the MCU. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the, and that's the way that we got here is Mm -hmm. this really unique uh, kind of release format which no one had ever tried before where you have these solo movies for characters that at the time people were like does anybody give a shit about yeah Thor? most people did not know who iron man was they don't want to yeah. even captain america that was an outdated character no one really cared about like that's true and, i'm sorry and you're building towards this moment where all these characters now you've established them in their own movies with their own adventures and their own cast of characters which i think is actually kind of important having that you know think about Dr. Eric Selvig and all the mm-hmm. things that he's done and how important he's been to like happy. the kind of like wider, happy uh, Darcy. Yeah, Darcy. Yeah, Pepper oh my Potts. God. Like all these characters who who came in through the solo movies who were then like really important in kind of like populating the mm-hmm. MCU and making it feel like a, a real live universe with all these people walking around. That's I, so I, true. It, I wonder if the mutants is a hint that they're going to do that. Because, it, you know, this is how they got there. This yeah. is how they got here. And it, I think it makes more sense than just doing, you know, because for me, I think what I love the X-Men movies, particularly X2, Yeah, of X course. United. I mean, it, they're great. Um, I, you know, it, even if they're bad, I fucking liked them. You know, like even when they're killing characters that should not <laughs> die, I was like, fine. R.I.P. Darwin. R.I.P. Darwin. Um, but p- the thing that made it hard is that You had all these X-Men movies and you couldn't, because the cast is so huge, Mm -hmm. barely spend any time with them. You barely spend any time with Scott dies fucking off camera, Mm -hmm. barely spend uh, any time with Nightcrawler, you know, like barely spend any time with Storm. I want to spend time with these characters because, you know, selfishly because I love them. And I think that. Listen, that's how you establish the Avengers. Why not establish the X-Men that way where you give them their own yep. projects and then have everybody t- you build towards this crescendo of a team-up movie? I think that would be cool. I think it would be really cool. I hope that's I hope that this mutants uh, reporting is true and I really yeah, I hope we get to see something like that cuz that would be very cool. That said, let's do a let's do a quick fan cast. Yeah. Let's cast let's cast our MCU x-men team um and you can just let we can just pick whoever we want it doesn't need to be giant size it doesn't need to be ultimate x-men yeah, yeah, we can just be the original team. some people just, the, just people that you like do you want to start oh this is so hard i i this is the I, kind of really thing <laughs> i think about all the time okay i'll go with one of my favorite fan casts which would be a very different version but i do like the idea of it so I'll start with Wolverine. I think there's so many oh. different ways they could go. I am a I'm a short King Wolverine stand, but that is not the route. <laughs> that's not the route I'm going to go right now because I don't really think I have a. I'm still 
in contention. Like, would I would I like to see like John David Washington as Wolverine? Yes, I think well, he's he's one. very stern. But this is I'm going to go with so Keanu Reeves. We love him. Everyone loves Whoa. him, right? He when he was a kid, his like a young actor, his dream was to play Wolverine. And I actually think in a world of Old Man Logan, of a world where we've mm-hmm. seen a young Wolverine growing up in in inverted commas because he's immortal, but we've seen Hugh Jackman on that journey. <laughs> I think it'd be very interesting. Wolverine's old. He can be as old as he's you want. He can be three hundred years old. He can be a thousand years yeah. old. He can be however old. We I have no idea. We have how no old idea. This guy it is. changes depending on the canon and the story <laughs> yeah. and the timeline. I think it'd be really cool to see. Keanu gets to take on that role, have an older, grizzled Wolverine who really gets to play that father figure that's something that we love so much about him. I think it would be really cool to have a, a, a an Asian-Canadian actor. You know, Wolverine's a famously Canadian character. A lot of his story arcs have, have taken from uh, specifically Japanese kind of culture and yeah. stuff. I think it could be very cool to see Keanu take that on. He's done a lot of storytelling uh, in that world already. You know, I, I would... I think that could be so cool. But I, I also, I like to cast like an old, like I like to cast old and young together. With That's what I did with my my Fantastic Forecast at Nerdist a couple of years ago that really popped off. So I, I think that would be really cool. You know what? I don't even want to argue against that. I'm right? being convinced. It's so cool. I think that that's actually a great, because now that I'm thinking about it, what would be really cool to me is like, quote unquote teenage, you know, obviously they're, you know, early 20s in reality, mm-hmm. but like in the movie, like late teens, Cyclops, Iceman, Bobby yep. Jean, you know, throw out the throw out the love triangle if she does that young. Ultimate love Logan triangle. is 300. But you know what I mean? And then this older, like grizzled mutant who's been through it is like, mm-hmm. you kids don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Somebody <laughs> go get me some beer. Um, I think that that would actually be really good. And so along those lines, well, first, let me go. Let me do the, the elder states people first. Magneto, Eric, <sighs> Eric Lencher. Uh, obviously one of the most important Jewish characters mm-hmm. in comics, period. Um, so it, I, for me, got to be a Jewish actor. It It's probably, unless you're going to do something with, you know, Hydra or yeah, 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 alternate yeah. dimension, it, it wouldn't make, it, it just... I think it has to be whatever way... It credulity for him to be a, a Holocaust survivor, but he could be like the the grandchild mm-hmm. of survivors. So I was thinking uh, Liv, Liv Schreiber. Oh, uh, that's Liv really Schreiber. interesting. A great voiceover guy, of course. Uh, have seen him in a Wolverine movie uh, and, you know, star wow. of numerous uh, television shows and movies. Con Weary from the Scream franchise. So I'll always know that, him. Every time I see him, I'm just like, oh, it's Con Weary. Wrongly imprisoned, but still sucks. Uh, so that is my pick Love for that. Eric Lyncher, Magneto. Who would you like to go uh, okay. for next? Whew. I mean, that Magneto casting is so good. I think you're right. I think the biggest thing that they're going to come up against in this space is finding a way to recontextualize that aspect of his character to make it yeah. fitting. You know, if if I, I I do want it to be a Jewish actor, but I do have to say, like, I've been watching The Bear, and that kid 
The main yeah. kid from the bear would be such a good young Magneto. But Marvel cast a Jewish actor, so ignore me. I don't know if he's Jewish. I, the character's Italian-American, so who, who knows? Also, my other best Jewish actor that I always cast for stuff is like Miro. I always say they should cast Miro. <laughs> they should cast Miro as the thing, right? That would be so good because the thing's Jewish. I like that. I would love that. Whew. Okay, so let's say we'll go with the Leave Schreiber. I like that. Who would we do for Charles? Charles! Char- that now, is such an important chemistry. It's just like... It really is. Absolutely vital. I feel like in the modern MCU, and when we're okay. very aware of the analogs that the X-Men yes. are meant to represent, I think that a black Charles Xavier is quite likely and would make a lot of sense. So I would definitely like to see Marvel go that route. I think the the rumor at the moment... Uh, one of the many rumors from an absolutely unconfirmed is uh, Giancarlo Esposito. I like that. I, I think I, that's I'm, brilliant. I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued by that. Let me raise this issue. It, uh, you know, of late in current X-Men comics and, you know, X-Men runs uh, stretching back, say, uh, 10 years or so, um, as we've talked about in, in previous episodes, the X-Men have, have become, and I think... Uh, necessarily become a more radical mm-hmm. outfit. Um, they, you know, Scott in particular broke dramatically with Charles's yeah. dream once it became clear that, listen, the humans are just never going to fucking accept us. And even our, <laughs> he, it took and him even, a long time, but he got there. Yeah, and, and, and even our friends, mm-hmm. the Avengers, Captain America, etc., are seemingly never around when we're getting genocided in mil- in our millions and hundreds of thousands. Does it... And I'm just asking the question, I don't know the answer to this, and obviously the, we haven't even seen the X-Men yet and we don't know what the framing is. I also think there's an interesting world in which, <laughs> in which if you take the radical X-Men perspective, you've got a kind of like almost naive white Charles. I think no, I think that's actually a really good call and and I think that in that way you can do something really interesting cuz Charles is, can essentially be your bleeding heart liberal. You know, he yeah. believes in these outdated ideas that don't protect the people that he loves even though he really is idealistic and believes that they should. And I think that could be like really interesting. I also I think Giancarlo works for me because I am a I love Charles Xavier, but I'm definitely a bit of... I'm a Charles Xavier critic at the same time. And I oh. I feel like he could do a really good job of... He could meld that kind of kind, loving heart that Charles needs. Yeah. But he can also have that coolness of someone who would send kids into, like, a war. Like, children. Right. And, and would and would erase, erase and suppress the memories oh. of his closest Don't even get me confidants and and classmates and and students what a scoop even though even though by the way he said he would never do that and he doesn't do that and he mm-hmm. doesn't reach into people's memories without letting he does it all the fucking he, time he's Charles. always doing that he loves, he's always doing absolutely it absolutely loves it just loves it <laughs> loves to wipe a brain and that will probably <laughs> come up in how people don't know about the mutants. Actually, I wouldn't be surprised at all if we find out that at least one of the characters that we already know in the MCU did have some knowledge of mutants or discovered them, and they ended up 
Mm. Having their brain wiped or being forgotten. I am firmly, and I mean firm, like, you know, obviously this is all conjecture, but the, the, the thing about the mutants that I feel pretty confident about is that when we do introduce Logan he's going to be part of some super, 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 super secret part of the super soldier program. Oh, for we sure. Know it, we know it didn't stop yeah. when they lost Cap in the ice, right? They just kept going and going and going. Yeah. So he's going to be, he, you know, he was probably in, maybe in Korea, maybe in Vietnam, uh, maybe in the Middle East, just uh, a brainwashed mm-hmm. killing machine uh, under the employ of a shadowy government um, military industrial Man. corporations. Um, I, I think that will be something that will happen, meaning that there's got to be various scientists and people mm-hmm. that know about his existence. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's see. I'm going to go with, let me, uh, how about Storm? We need Storm. Oh. And is and there's got to, you know, Storm has to have presence and uh, for me, this maybe is an obvious choice, but I want to I want to see uh, Lupita Nyong'o in this role. Oh, I mean, I think that's like su- such a smart role. I always I always wondered after they cast her as Nakia in Black Panther um, whether or not they were going to kind of try and retro convert them into the same character. And I did read a a rumor of late about the possibility of Azari, who is Storm and T'Challa's son from Next Avengers and, and some oh, comics. interesting. I heard a rumor he may be in the movie. So I, I wonder, I when Michaela Cole got announced in Black Panther 2, I was so happy to see the internet be like, Storm. Because I would just love that. It would be such an unexpected casting. And she's so well known for um, her comedy. But then to see her... You know, in her recent brilliant HBO show, I May Destroy You, showed that it's not just a comedic range, it's like a really big dramatic range. So I just, I think that could be really interesting. But I, I oh, think Lapita would be, that's the if, level it, that I think you need to have for a storm casting, which is like Oscar award winning icon. Because Storm, and I do think as well, Storm is, that's the character you have to get right. Right in the X-Men now, that is the character people wear on T-shirts. That that was not the case. That Those T-shirts weren't available when we were kids, sadly, because Storm's always been a badass. But yeah. to me, like, if you get Storm right, you're probably on the right track. And I would love to know what the world is. One of my old dream Storm castings, and they absolutely teased me with this in Black Panther, was uh, Angela Bassett. And Angela oh, with yeah. the white dreads in Black Panther just looks like Storm. And I was like, how could you guys, how could you do this to me? So you hinted at how it would work. You know, obviously, Nakia already part of a secret society Mm -hmm. in Wakanda that was hidden from the world. So it'd be like a secret society inside of a secret society. Either she's a mutant whose powers hadn't developed yet. Or, uh, uh, or, Charles brainwashed. I was going to say something about being you know, like, having her powers repressed, or yeah, being in Wakanda near vibranium or the purple yeah. herb or something. It would be very easy to explain why those powers had never 
manifested earlier. I always wondered if that was something they were going to do. So I think that would be controversial, but cool. Because also like Storm's comic book backstory is very of its time. It's not bad, but it's just like, I don't think anyone would be devastated to have Lapita playing Storm. And it, and I just want to see more of her. That's also selfishly. Oh, absolutely. Um, who who else do you have? Okay, so I I I think if we're gonna go young for the kind of core members like Cyclops and Jean and stuff, I am number one. We don't talk about it on the show very much, even though it is a comic book thing. But it's just so outrageous. You to talk about one episode, you'd need like five seasons of a podcast. Um, but I love Riverdale, and I actually think um, <laughs> one of the most off-the-rail television is, shows there, in the history of like, television the, shows. If you like weird shit, if you thought Twin Peaks wasn't weird enough, <laughs> then watch Riverdale. And also, if you like comic book storytelling, just skip to the late, like the last two seasons, because Roberto Aguasacasa, who was the 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 creator of the show and who is an Archie writer who made a gay Archie musical that got cease and desisted many, many years ago and then became the creative, the chief creative officer of Archie Comics, which is probably the best origin story ever. Um, he really loves comic books and he loves Archie and he does some absolutely just bonkers shit in the newest stuff with the way they use timelines and, and comic books as part of the narrative. But I think KJ Apple would be like a very good St- Scott Summers he is ah. he's so good as Archie and he has this kind of stoic seriousness that I think Scott needs but he also has a naivety that I also think Scott needs but he can he can kind of play that that middle ground between being the jock and being the boy next door and I think that's the version of Scott they're going to do I prefer the first time I, I thought Scott was an interesting character that I actually liked and wanted to know more about was in New X-Men when he was having like the psychic affair with Emma. I thought that version oh, of him yeah. was very interesting. But I think, why wouldn't you try and make a young X-Men team that you can stay with for 10, 15 years? Like that would be the smart choice. So I, I think going younger makes sense. New X-Men and Astonishing X-Men were the two properties where I was just like, wow. Cyclops is really mm-hmm. a fascinating character because up to that point, um, and I think this has kind of been a problem in the movies depiction that you yeah. know, the, the film depictions of, of Scott. Summers, though James like, is amazing, James Marsden is amazing. Though, yeah, yeah. There's but there, it's a little bit of like, why do people follow this guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Was, what does he have you know, to like, offer? What, what, yeah, what is he? Why is why does everybody fall in line behind Scott just because like Charles told him to? Mm-hmm. And then it it wasn't until New X Men and then Astonishing that really brought out just it. And I thought it in a really smart way because he can just destroy anything he looks at. He's got to be in control. All the time. Yeah. And so he's always thinking about how do I keep control of everything that's happening? How do I think about every possible thing that could possibly go wrong? When he's bouncing his optic beams off of stuff, Mm -hmm. he's just got to understand these angles and these different approaches. He is an absolute control freak. And also that kind of jock boy next door. Mm-hmm. There's like an edge to him that isn't always evident. I think it sometimes it gets played as, oh, he's 
he's scared to open his eyes. If he doesn't have his visor, he doesn't yeah. know what the fuck's going on. It's actually like freeing to him to just like cut loose, but he's also mm-hmm. like a little scared of it. And I think if uh, whoever they find to do it, if they can crack that code, I'm really excited to see uh, uh, who Scott Summers can can be on film. Now, for Gene, for his, uh, for his this is lifelong the romantic question. partner. Let me, let me run something by you. Okay, I want to hear it. Sadie Sink. I mean, from... absolutely. <laughs> One, if you're a redheaded actress and you're known for being a redhead, you're going to get cast <laughs> yeah. as Gene Grey. Sansa Stark. Let's be real. Right, yeah. When that casting happened, all of us were like, oh my God, of course. A fucking course. Yeah. Sadie Sink would absolutely love it. I also think... We're going young. We're going Again, young. I also, think it's important to I'll go recast, young. I recast somebody younger as KJ if that was the case. But I will say, I very much like the idea of a very young Jean who is very much trying to be in control of her powers, but isn't because yes. she's a fucking child. And That's- who is being both looked after and manipulated. I think there's I think there's just something really cool. Also, look at the stories that are popular. Sadie Sink from uh, Stranger Things, right? That show does not exist without the X-Men. Eleven is just Jean <laughs> yeah, Grey. Oh, yeah, Eleven is yeah, just Jean Grey, right? But that story hits so hard, this notion of a young girl being experimented on in this horrible way who has these unbelievable powers and her trying to find like a found family. That's an X-Men story. And I would really love to see them. And we know Sadie has range. This is not even just Stranger Things, like the Taylor Swift video. I think everyone was like super blown away by her performance in that and the kind of emotional depth where she definitely was playing like a little bit older. And I, I think that's brilliant. And I think you could build a really, really interesting cast around an actual teenage Jean Grey. Here's my other reasoning behind just uh, thinking that it's kind of important because we want to establish that school aspect. I think you have to you have to flesh out Gene in a way that is separate and distinct from Wanda, who has, as we have said, as you have pointed out oh, multiple times, it's so true. Has to, has has to this point in the MCU basically been Gene Grey, mm-hmm. but an adult Gene. Um, and so I think, uh, to your point, younger not even not in control of her powers doesn't know what her powers are because Charles has wiped that part of her. It's just, yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and, you know, and, uh, and that's what, and I think, and kind of like that very, uh, that generous, you know, big hearted kind of character Mm -hmm. who is, the emotional support for everyone, but is also just like super young, very naive, the kind of character who is powerful, but you would worry about yeah. going into a, a fight with, you know, the brotherhood. of Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know that she can hold her own, but also you just don't want her to have to because she's right. a baby. Yeah. I think that's really, I think that's brilliant casting. Who do you have next? Whew. I'm like... We'll do a couple more. We'll do yeah, a couple yeah, yeah. more. Whew. This is my favorite game. I could just... I, I, I could absolutely <laughs> do this all day. I think... So another person that I think they have to get right absolutely is Rogue. Oh, uh, yeah. Especially because I think that you you brought up a really brilliant point about Rogue 
and Captain Marvel, Carol Danvers, and the connection that they have in yeah. the comics and this space where they exist as almost one character and and Rogue's journey. And that, to me, seems like an arc that you would want to explore, right? Yeah. So I just, I think about this all the time and I'm always watching some show and I'll be like, they should cast that girl as Rogue or something. But I'm like, <laughs> who who would it be? Now, let me, would you also go young with Rogue, like, I in think, her first appearance? I, I think if you could find the right actor, I mean, let's not, the one thing I think the MCU is really good at, especially Kevin Feige, right? Yeah. Replicating the things he's seen in the past in a way that is reflected, but not copied. So I don't, yeah. I think that we will likely get a, a gruffer, older Wolverine or a gruffer, younger Wolverine. But I think that you're still going to have that youthful Anna, pa- Anna Paquin is so young in that role and brings this like such a sadness to it and a naivety. Yeah. I just need to say, I would never believe that Rogue would ever get a mutant cure. Thanks very much, X3. Yeah. But, you know, we don't really talk I'm, about X3, so... No we, don't, no, we don't. Again, Scott Scott dies off screen. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> One of the most important X-Men of all time dies off screen in that movie. Yeah. So going to my teen superhero shows again, which I do just think is, like, really some of the best actors begin in those shows, is, like, there is a... Um, really brilliant actor in that who plays Wildcat called Yvette Monreal. And she mm. just has this like, her Wildcat's arc in Stargirl is is very emotional and she doesn't really want to be a superhero and she doesn't have powers, but she's given like a powered suit, which is how most of them get it because more of a JSA style storyline. But she has that inherent sadness, but also that feisty like righteousness but within the story, which is something I found really interesting about Stargirl, they took her on this arc that I felt was like very roguish, where it was about when something terrible happens to someone that you care about, what's the line that you cross when it comes to dealing with the person who did that? And I think mm. that kind of moral gray area is really important for Rogue because of the Carol Danvers storyline and that part of, of Danvers's backstory. So Yvette is really great. And I, I thought she was just so good. I mean, I want to cast like every kid from Stargirl in something. There's there's yeah. a kid who plays Brainwave Junior in the first season. Like, please, everyone go and watch that season. It's one of the best seasons of TV sh- and like nobody's seen it because it was on DC Universe. But the kid who plays Henry Junior is this unbelievable kid who looks like Harry Osborn. And I mean, Whoa. you just look at him and he just is Harry. His hair almost, <laughs> he's white, but his hair almost has waves. Like he, and he's ginger. And like this kid's dad is such a piece of shit brainwave. And, and his arc in that show is still just one of the most heartbreaking things of all time. And I think about him all the time and I know the MCU isn't going to do Harry Osborn, but I'm like, please cast that kid. Oh, Jake Austin Walker. He's so good. Yeah. And I'm, I'm the Stargirl team's PR person. I'm like, every child in that is amazing. Cast them in the MCU. Quick aside. When they bring in Harry Osborn, mm-hmm. um, waves? Do they should they do the waves I, in the movie? I think I think that the way the MCU is now, I I would trust them to do a complex character who had waves. I think they would do it. I think that, that you could do it in, in an interesting, cool way. Because like also, if we look at the way that they react to fans now, that is the fans' vision of Harry Osborn. That's the fan art that gets drawn. That's the way people see him. Like. I would like to see it. Okay, I'm going to do one more. Gosh, this is tough. How about, let's pick a weird one. Oh, no, actually, let's go uh, Kitty Pride Again, okay. one, of, one of the most important, one of the most important uh, Jewish yep. characters in comics 
writ large. Uh, this is maybe slightly off the beaten path here, but I'm going to go uh, Maud Apatow. Okay. No, I could see of it. the Apatow from the for, uh, the spawn of of Judd Apatow and the Apatow family. Uh, I would also I, I Iris maybe should also audition for it, depending how how young we're going to go. But I think uh, but I think Maude Apatow, uh, you know her from Euphoria in a very 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 small role, but like a um, very impactful role. That's I think, but a very impactful I think post role. Euphoria. That's she's, why I think she. I has, think that's she why has I think it. She can do it. I agree. That's why I think. That's why I think she's got it because there's like. You know, there's like a Kitty is obviously like a young kid from the suburbs, mm-hmm. but a f- but with an edge, a fighter. Yeah, she ha- is absolutely resourceful and has depths that I think that you know the the, the experience of like watching her character mm-hmm. evolve on screen should be that. Oh my, I didn't think that this character that can just walk through walls like that's all there is to it right i didn't think that she had this much ability this much fight this much grit to who she is and i think uh maude's character in euphoria her scenes in euphoria kind of convinced me that she could do it i think you're right and also something else i think is really key about kitty is it's unlikely that she's going to be immediately like a main character in the movies. Yes, the I X-Men could see her movies. being a very small. Exactly, like you need to build yeah. to that space where you could do a real version of Days of Future Past. Would they do it? Who knows? But like Kitty has a lot of story arcs. Also, you know, now she has different a different mantle. She's plays a really main key role in the in the current X line. So I think you could build there, but I think having someone who can make the character memorable even in the smallest scenes is key. So I think that is, that's chef's kiss, kiss casting. And then Jacob Elordi is Colossus. <laughs> <laughs> that's evil. That's evil. Wait, tell me. No, we can't do that. Okay, so uh, your last one. Whew. Okay. Uh, oh, man. I'm like, what should I? Okay. Hmm. Whomst could it be? Oh, I'm like, there's so many good X-Men. Oh, I love Dazzler. A, I mean, we could le- we could legitimately go for, like, I will go. I could do this. I'll or, sit here and yeah. start. I'll start casting gold balls and Duke I'm telling you. And I'm telling armor. you. I will, and, and Doug Ramsey. I'll just keep going. No, but yeah. Who, okay, who, so I have, so this is an out there one, right? But I like it. Like, so the original, as we know this, like the original, um, Dazzler was made to basically be like a tie-in character for a disco record and stuff. So I think Black <laughs> Dazzler great. makes a lot of sense. I am the number one stan of Ella Belinska, who is this oh. brilliant actress who was in Charlie's Angels, the much maligned reboot. It's good, actually. Don't hate. Camp stuff is fun. Um, she's a brilliant action artist, and she's just really cool, really beautiful. And she's also in the the new Resident Evil show, which is currently which is insane. Just which is, by the way, insane. It's absolutely is, bonkers. I, just like you couldn't believe first, it. You absolutely couldn't watched, believe it. I watched the first episode, and it is bananas. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, she's so good. And like, I'd like she does a lot of action and 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 genre stuff, which is like she's so good in Charlie's Angels the whole time, and she's English the whole time. I was watching, her, I was just thinking, shit, she should be Lara Croft. Like she's just got it, <laughs> but. I'd love to see her get to have a bit more fun in like a Dazzler style role, but that's still a really athletic, action-packed role because of the way her powers work. 
it would be really nice to see we've seen like a glimpse of a version of a dazzler where they're just like having a rave in a in a park in a movie but like i would like to see a proper dazzler and i think ella could really put actually there's there's a scene in charlie's angels which if you haven't seen it bless yourself where ella blinska and Kristen Stewart do a disco dance routine to Bad Girls. And it is like one of my favorite scenes from any movie. And it's like a in-time dance routine that they do as part of a Charlie's Angel star ploy. So go and watch that and enjoy the campiness of that good. It's it's a good movie, man. I swear to God. <laughs> uh, this has been really fun. If uh, hopefully people don't hate our fan casts. Mm-hmm. And if you have different ideas, please send yeah, them to us. We'd love to, we'd love to hear your fan casts. Um, do you have any... This is... We're belaboring this, but that's because we love the mutants. What would your... What would your The Mutants like elevator pitch plot be for the movie? Okay, my The Mutants elevator plot would be... Jubilee, she's left home because of her powers. She meets a gang of kids <laughs> who hang out at the mall and they all sort of realize that they have these weird powers maybe because they got in trouble because of an accident at the mall or something. Probably there's an arcade or some kind of cool Robocop 2 style hideout. And it would be about them learning to have their powers, to work with their powers as this rise of anti-powered people, anti-mutant oppression was kind of coming. And then you'd have your final stinger would be like a a Harry Potter style letter asking you to be part of the school or a Charles Xavier stinger or something. But I'd focus on the kids and this notion of this ragtag underground found family. What would yours be? Uh, I'd do something actually quite similar. I think I'd, I'd, I'd do like mutant massacre without the massacre Ooh. so it'd be like morlocks you yes. know these teens I think that have been is really likely cuz also they yeah, already and... live hidden from everyone else that's right so they're on the run they're uh, they're living like that living hidden and maybe the way it all kind of comes to the fore is charles just for the good of mutants as a species has been doing this mind wipe thing and suppressing people's ability to understand that they're mutants, et cetera. But like he, he, there's a discrepancy. Yeah. Maybe there's a kid who has a power that contradicts it or something. something. And, and they have a memory that they shouldn't have. And this unravels the whole mystery that leads us down to the tunnels, uh, damage control or, or the Sentinel program, or somebody goes down there to, to basically root out, um, what they think are this uh, community of outlaw-powered people, but is really just like, you know, kids and outcasts living on the margins of society, and that blows the lid off of this entire secret society that's been living underground. Oh, I love that. That sounds great. Marvel, come to us. We'll we'll help you. Come to I us. I know baby. you're just announcing the mutants because people want X Men <laughs> stuff. I don't. I don't believe there's a pitch. We're ready. Up next. The summer of 1982 and Blade Runner. We're stepping out of airlocks, you people. 
have never seen <laughs> into the rain-soaked, shadow-filled world of replicants, Nexus 3, 4, 5, and 6, and the rainy streets of 21st, almost 21st century Los Angeles to talk about the summer of 1982 in the sci-fi masterpiece Blade Runner, as chosen by you, the listeners of X-Ray Vision, uh, for this to be our airlock topic. And what a fun one. First, let's break down the poll results, shall we? Uh, so we had uh, uh, thousands of votes cast. Thank you so much. Uh, Blade Runner obviously came in came in uh, at the top. They beat uh, beat out Swamp Thing, Poltergeist, and Creep Show. Shocking in its bracket. Uh, Swamp Thing, listen, had no chance, but that's a movie I've seen 500 I times. I love that movie. Also, that was like a very horror-heavy bracket, but I feel like Blade yeah. Runner came out. It was like it was winning for the cult classics and then, and then the classics. Poltergeist, another one I've seen five oh my God. billion, million, trillion yeah. times. Uh, and Creepshow, uh, yep. Stephen King's uh, debut Again. on-screen performance. And, and, and it's comics. You know, creep shows all comics. around comics. So, so pulpy. So pulpy. Amir Heckerling classic. Fast Times won in its bracket versus Tron, The Thing, and Conan the Barbarian. Again, other movies that I also love. Fast Times, I it would have been, I have seen Fast Times a lot of times. And I think that it's depiction of high school culture remains in many ways relevant. Mm -hmm. And I think Spicoli is probably one of the most influential characters. Oh, yeah. to, I mean, like, we just got done talking kind of about Stranger Things and it's mm -hmm. like, you know, Spicoli is all over season four <laughs> of Stranger Things. Um, but I also, man, Tron, great. The Thing, stone cold fucking classic. And then Conan the Barbarian, another movie that I've seen. Yeah, I mean. A movie that scared me. For, in case you a, haven't noticed, a, a lot of really unbelievable movies came out in the summer of 1982, yeah. 40 years ago. Hence why we did this bracket. And every single one, I'm like, we could just do a whole summer of 82 podcast where you do a different movie each week. Because it is just unreal. Star Trek 2 uh, beat out The Dark Crystal. Oh, my God. I love, I love that Crystal. movie so much. First Blood. Actually a good movie. Yes. And shocking. Rocky 3. Yeah. First Blood. Uh, uh, people forget because it became this like mm -hmm. ridiculous like right wing like fantasy oh, yeah. series where like fucking John Rambo goes to Afghanistan and helps the Muj Mujahideen like defeat the Russians and all this fucking crazy shit. But like the first First Blood, the first Rambo movie was about like America's shame and guilt at losing the Vietnam War and its failure yeah. to be responsible for the for the veterans who were impacted by that mm -hmm. war. It's actually a fucking great movie. It's unbelievably um, deep and complex and just kind of blows your mind when you you will if you haven't watched it for a long time, go back and rewatch it because you will just be like, oh, this is not it's what actually, the series became. Not at all. Uh Dark Crystal I just love. I need more puppets. Star Trek II, Wrath of Khan, Ricardo Montalban. Mm -hmm. I didn't get that he was reprising his role as Khan from the TV. Like, I didn't understand that at all when I saw this movie. That came in later yeah. when I started watching the TV show. They um they used to play 
reruns of Star Trek after Get Smart mm. in the summertime on like the local TV channel. They still so do like, that. As someone who watches broadcast TV, you can still watch those two shows in a row, I promise you. Oh my God. So, <laughs> so it's like Get Smart from 9 to 10. And then from like 11 to 1, mm-hmm. it's like back-to-back Star Treks. So I watched every Star Trek yeah. that way by just doing that. And then E.T., which, uh, again, the first time I saw my, my mom cry was uh, watching E.T. It was very – it was – it was I didn't know what was happening. I was scared. And E.T. beat out Secret of Nim. Love the Secret of Nim. Iconic. Mad Max 2, Road Warrior. Also iconic and Grease too. Grease too, cult classic. <laughs> L.A. cult classic, especially people in L.A. love Grease too, and rightfully so. It's actually a great movie, and the songs are bangers. But I love that it has this very specific following in L.A. It's a fucking great movie. It's so good. Uh, what happened to Maxwell Caulfield? It's like right? Maxwell Caulfield. I'm like, this guy's a fucking star. Easy rider, baby. Uh, anyway. Let's get into Blade Runner 1982, directed by Ridley Scott, screenplay by Hampton Fancher and David Peoples, impeccable, iconic fucking score by the uh, Greek musician Vangelis, who absolutely, like... Shit still sounds futuristic. You can't even. So good. It's so good. It's like one of the best original soundtracks of all time. I mean, it's also, it's so impactful to me that. The biggest compliment I can give a film score is that it sounds like Vangelis. So, like, Aquaman actually has a very Vangelis-sounding soundtrack, and I just listened to it so much because I was like, absolutely no one listens to this. Like, no one realizes (laughs) that this exists, and it is just so good. Yeah, Vangelis is the best. And it's, of course, uh, based on the Philip K. Dick story, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? The movie stars Harrison Ford as Rick Deckard, who may or may not be human. Uh, The American film debut of Rutger Hauer, German star Rutger Hauer as the ominous Roy Batty. Sean Young in her, uh, I think, feature film debut as Rachel. Edward James Olmos as Gath. M. Emmett Walsh as Bryant, Daryl Hannah as Pris, William Sanderson as J.F. Sebastian, Brian James as Leon Kowalski, Joe Turkel as Eldon Zarell, and Joanna Cassidy as Zora. When did you first come into contact with Blade Runner? Well, Blade Runner is one of my mom's favorite films. Um, so I, this movie has been perennially in my life, my whole life. It was something we always had on VHS. I have seen many different, well, I've now seen every different one of the seven cuts. I have seen Blade Runner many times in the cinema, both the director's cut and then when it was finally released, I saw one of the best experiences of my life regarding Vangelis as well was um, I saw the final cut at the BFI, the British Film Institute, on the South Bank in London, and the soundtrack was just like unreal. They had those big, good speakers. So, yeah, no, for me, this is just, this is up there, like, with movies like E.T. and and those Goonies, you know, like, obviously it's different artistic style, but to me, this is one of those perennial cinema classics that's kind of always been in my life because it came out, like, six years before I was born. Yeah, I can't even remember when the first time I saw it was, but I, I will guarantee you that I didn't understand it. Uh, when I the first, you know, 50 times I watched it because <laughs> I, I just didn't I didn't understand what was happening. And it wasn't until later I, I was mostly responding to 
wow, this is so cool. Yeah, looking, the vibes. Everything. It's a very vibesy movie. I mean, that that first opening shot of future Los Angeles with the big uh, noodle advertisement mm-hmm. on the building and all the spinner ships coming through and the big blimp uh, telling you, hey, explore the off-world world colonies. It was like it legitimately looked like the most futuristic thing I had ever seen. Mm-hmm. And I was just completely blown away at how like lived in and real it looked. Like, I mean, yeah. Star Wars was lived in as well, but there was... Star Wars is like, it's it's lovely, but it's very of its time and it was not, it did not have a big budget and it was definitely, it has like janky moments, you know? Like it was lived I, in I'm, and it looks great. Like I love that aesthetic, but Blade Runner is like the use of miniatures, the cinematography. Oh my God. It feels like a real world. And even in like the early 90s, which was realistically probably when I watched it, it felt so immersive and so unlike anything else that I'd seen. Here's a, uh, let's talk quickly about the cuts. So there are <laughs> currently seven different cuts of the film. Yeah. There was the first, the original cut that came out in 1982, which... Uh, it, I think it's fair to say it was a disappointment in the box office. It was, yeah, yeah. A, it was a flop. They were expecting more from it. Uh, then came the VHS cut. Now, interestingly, the VHS cut was kind of like a backdoor extra cut because it differed significantly from the, uh, the theatrical cut, in, notably in some of the fight scenes. There's actually a warning on the VHS box it says warning this film contains never before released scenes of graphic violence yeah, that were edited I out of the theatrical that. release uh, and then this film uh, this is the cut that later became the laser disc version uh, from criterion as well oh, i love came, that criterion used to make laser discs i think about that at that least cool? once a week so then came the u.s broadcast cut in 1986 so there's an international cut. The broadcast cut, I don't know if that really counts. It's like an right. edited CBS cut. But like there's a wiki for the versions, the Wikipedia page that just has all seven. Because um, I think the next one was the, it was basically like the work right. Then print. came the work print in 1989. Is the, the, and then that became the director's cut. Right. So then 8990, the work, the, the so-called work print emerges. Now, this was discovered by a film preservationist and I th- and made its debut, I want to say, at like a 70 millimeter. It was like, very much like a rep film screening festival. cult thing where somebody got a reel and it was like a myth of this like better version of the movie. And it's and it's thought that this was a test audience screening. Oh, that like makes when, so when, much sense. Pre-voiceover. Pre-voiceover. Warner Brothers wanted to see how the movie was going to test to figure out like how much promo and budgeting budgeting uh, they wanted to put behind it. Um, and, you know, a, a process they still do today, although in a much more like computerized fashion. Uh, and so this is what they were showing to test audiences and somehow a real stayed out there that somebody got a hold of. That's how of. it used to be. That's what rep cinemas used to be. You just bought up the old reels. And yeah, I, I mean, and I love that. How exciting that must have been. So this cut is very similar to uh, the theatrical cut, except there's no voiceover, which 
had probably not been added yeah, at that yeah, point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, uh, that, and then that inspired this kind of fan call for a director's cut or or a recut version that was closer to what they imagined Ridley's vision would be. The movie ends in the elevator, so you don't get that, uh, you know, them driving through the country and they've gone off together. The happy ending, right? Um, This print was screened uh, in 1990 at the Fairfax 70mm Film Festival in L.A., which led to, it got a great response. So Warner Brothers was like, okay, uh, let's release it in a in a limited style at two theaters, one in Los Angeles, one in San Francisco, and those just sold out. Here is a a, a quote from uh, the October thirteenth. Uh, edition of the LA Times, quote, Scott's director cut has been playing to unprecedented audiences at the New Art Theater in West LA. The film's Iconic. opening weekend set a house record. Um, so people were, were just absolutely going crazy for this, quote unquote, new yeah. cut of of Blade Runner, which was really almost like the original An old cut, almost the original <laughs> original cut. And the funniest thing about it, as well, is like you're four years in at this point from when Blade Runner was. Re- <laughs> oh know, no, my I... God! No, no, you're ten years in. This is ten like years. this is ten years. I know maths. This is ten years. And so, like the, I think you cannot discount the legacy and legend that had built up at this point about the cuts and the was the the voiceover didn't used to be there and then it was there and then it there's a version where it's not there so it that all makes a lot of sense to me and you get this uh, director's cut that is not as ridley told is not really a director's cut it's kind of a rush job that builds on the work print but doesn't like do the thing that he wants so you know 10 years down the line and he's still like this is incorrect this is not it's, the it's, correct it's, I, I, in doing research for this, I've I've been amused at any and all of the uh, the video interviews with Ridley where he's talking about the various cuts because he seems at best like slightly bemused by the yeah, whole yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. Like, he's definitely I, I, like he's definitely <laughs> in between bemused and like not bothered, where he's just yeah, kind of like. like <laughs> I think that he, you know, and this is obviously me reading into it, but it feels like. He's put all this stuff away a long time ago and is like, you guys still care? Okay, <laughs> fine. Yeah, well, let's do this. And, like there's there's like a there's a uh, a, a video like uh, interview of him promoting f- the final cut, uh, which is from 2007. I believe, yeah. Right? That, and that, then again, and, look, that's, uh, you know, 15 years later. <laughs> 15 years. And, and it's cut. literally it's literally it looks like. There's a gun off camera making <laughs> like he looks he's just like, this is my favorite cut of the movie. We cleaned some stuff up and uh, fixed some of the continuity editor uh, errors and made it look really great with the special effects and stuff. And this is my favorite cut. of The, the truth movie. is, I like, enjoy it. I do believe that Ridley Scott probably loves working on films. But like imagine yeah. and, and, and specifically like the final cut, which is the version that we watched for this, because it's the version that's most yeah. widely available and also generally now is the version like that's the version. There are DVD box sets you can get that have. Different versions, Every you can version, rent them, yeah. but generally the final cut, which is very strange because it used to be that you could not see the final cut and it was a myth and then, you know, it was very limited release and you had to buy a crazy expensive box set or whatever. But now you can watch it, you can stream it, it's on Netflix, it's on HBO Max. Um, and that's the version we watch. But like, imagine that you made something and then like 
decades later, people are still making you go back to that one thing. You would be stressed. You would be absolutely well, I, stressed. I, I will say in some of the clips, in some of like the documentary footage of the different editors talking about the things that they wanted to do and then running it by the clips of him, them running it by Ridley. I think with with certain with, you know, stuff like replacing Zora's face in her death scene where she's crashing through the glass so that it's not obviously a stunt performer, I think, you know, and, and cleaning up and brightening and shining up some of the really cool special effects. I think that stuff is fine. But there's a lot of like, there's a lot of discussion of how many continuity errors mm -hmm. are in well, uh, Blader. And there are yeah, a lot. Yeah, yeah. But, and, and and that's when you can sense that Ridley's like, all right, I've made a fucked up movie. Yeah, also get, like, who can, that's like, the stop, curse. Get off my ass. The curse what of this notion of continuity. Like, some movies have plot holes, but some movies are just, like, enigmatic, and you're not supposed to know. And I think, I actually think that speaks to the reason, one of the reasons that we kind of, that any of this happened at all, and something the the director's cut kind of makes text in a way that wasn't before, which is that big question of, like, is... Deckard, uh, a human, like you mentioned in the thing. I think that that's the major change that comes in this cut, and we'll kind of get into it more when we have our, our bigger convo yeah, about the movie. But it's very interesting to kind of see that idea of plot holes and continuity become something where yeah, so let's, you'd have to recut a, a film to fix them. So let's run that down. Okay, so we're at the... So uh, the working cut comes out. Uh, Ridley, in one of these uh, documentaries about all the cuts, has this really f quote that I think sums up the the kind of thing that Rosie and I have been talking about uh, regarding his perspective on all these cuts. He says, uh, this is about the working, uh, the work print that emerged. I think it was just a great fuss about nothing. It was really just an accidental removal of the voiceover. And then the movie ends... And then it ended in the elevator. That's really about it. <laughs> I kind of love. Okay, I love that though. Like you, you made a cool film that was just based on a story that you probably liked by a writer <laughs> you liked, and you're like, and then you cut it, and everyone's reading really deeply into it, like it's this philosophical puzzle box, and you're just like, I just cut one scene. Like it's not that yeah. deep. <laughs> Um, and then uh, so this but the work print, obviously, and the reception to it was super, super important in terms of, uh, you know, kind of like setting in stone mm -hmm. the legend of Blade Runner that we live with today. It led directly to the 1992 director's cut, as you were saying, Rosie, yeah. which is no voiceover, no happy ending. It ends in the elevator. And then we get the unicorn scene, which suggests that Deckard is a replicant because he has been dreaming about these unicorns. And then Gaff, who has been making little origami figures all movie, uh, makes a little unicorn, which is, if you want to believe that Deckard is a replicant, is Gaff saying, I I know what your memories are. Mm -hmm. in like the same, there's some in kind the same of way, program the same, dream. Yeah, in, the, in the same way that you... We're like, hey, Rachel, remember when you uh, looked at that spider egg outside your uh, window when you were a kid? Did you ever mm -hmm. tell anybody that? Like in this, in that exact same way, here is Gaff saying, mm -hmm. do you ever tell anybody you dreamt about unicorns? I know you do because you're a replicant. So that's the suggestion. And then in 2007, we get the final cut, uh, which is all those 
major changes, right? The no voiceover ends in the elevator in the unicorn, plus the extra violence from the VHS cut. Yeah, from the international, because obviously from the international international people love a good violence. They love a good violence, which it's like Pris, you know, uh, uh, putting her fingers in Deckard's nose and lifting his face. And then uh, Roy, uh, you know, crushing Tyrell's skull in in a much more extended format. Plus... Fixes for the various continuity errors, which are actually like really fascinating, including, as mentioned, uh, putting uh, uh, Joanna's 2007 scanned uh-huh. face over the the print so that it's n- it's not the stunt performer's face in her death scene. Taking Ben Ford, Harrison Ford's son, <laughs> taking Ben Ford's lips. Having him read the dialogue in the uh, the Egyptian uh, uh, animal dealer scene, because I guess in the original, which I didn't, I never noticed any of this shit. But in the original prints, the the sound was not synced, so they got Ben Ford to say the dialogue, and then they digitally put his lips over his dad's lips Old animation in sync style. with the dialogue. And there's a bunch of other stuff like that, like, you know, uh, Roy's death scene when the dove is released, it's raining. But then in the original, uh, when you watch the dove fly up, it's sunny. So they put the rain in. And there's lots of brilliant people online who have broken down all of these for you in like a very... Yeah. yeah. Or you can just watch all the cuts. I think that five of them are kind of widely available, but they are yeah. very fun. Um, so with that, let's get into our thoughts uh, about this movie. Um, I will say, man, fucking holds up. Yeah. Uh, absolutely holds up. Um, what are your thoughts, your just immediate emotional and uh, intellectual reaction to watching Blade Runner, the final cut in 2022? I just, yeah, it's so, it's one of those interesting things where it's like, it's so influential that when you watch it, it could almost feel derivative. But it's not because it's the right. thing that everyone else is that's taking from, you know? So I think that's always really interesting to watch a movie in that context where you sort of go, whoa, this has just influenced so much stuff to the point of, you know, some of it's to the point of parody. It gets parodied so much that that neon-hued, bleak, neo-noir aesthetic, you know, so many other sci-fi movies have aped it. But it's just, I think it's a really sad, sweet story about just trying to be a human. And I think that, and trying to be like a, a, trying to do the right thing and all those kind of things that humans really I, care about. And I, I feel like it's it's very universal and, and it's like, it's very cool. But also like, I understand why it was like a film that my mom loved because like, I feel like anyone could just watch this and find something in it to connect with. Yeah, I loved the which and, and this is like I didn't pick up on this in the hundreds of other times that I've watched this, but I, I love the way the robots hunger for there's no robot culture, there's no mm-hmm. excuse me, there's no replicant culture because they die after, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, it's, and they it's, live these extremely ex- hard lives. That life is their, their life expand is made to deny them of culture or legacy or ancestry or anything that can be built because they're only alive for so long and they live these lives as like basically indentured servants. So our our outlaws are essentially trying to create something like 
uh, a replicant culture basically out of nowhere. And the best they can come up with is human culture. Like there's this uh, there's this really great moment where uh, Roy and Chris are at J.F. Sebastian's. And J.F. Sebastian is like one of the uh, genetic engineers who is uh, responsible for the products that the Tyrell Corporation makes. And uh, uh, Chris at one point said like, you know, he's there. He's. JF is just realizing that these are Nexus sixes, the most advanced replicants. And uh, Pris says, I think therefore I am. And then she looks at Roy like, you know, really pleased with herself. And then Roy looks at her like he's proud of what she's like. Very good, Pris. That's great. It's like, so why why do they follow Roy? Because Roy knows human stuff. Mm-hmm. Roy is the one who understands the meaning behind all these human sayings and human art and human music and culture and an appreciation of of the little things of what it means to be alive in the same way that humans yeah. appreciate those things. And he's teaching them. He's giving that to them because he's the smartest of all of them. Um, and I just found that like incredibly touching. Like imagine you had no culture at all. Mm-hmm. You come from a people that have no idea where you come from and the only way that you can kind of like build out your own view of the world is through the pieces that you take from these other people who created and enslaved you Mm -hmm. it's really fucking sad yeah there's a lot of really really interesting dark complex stuff and i think that like you talked about you know roy and i think you just can't underestimate how good rutger hoyer is in this movie like he's he's so emotionally charged and powerful and 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 sad and righteously angry and i think something that really, even the happy ending, let's put it in inverted quotes version of the movie, like, this is a very bleak movie. And I think that's part of the reason that it stood the test of time, because there's not really a lot of movies like that, that kind of embrace this like inherent sadness of the world and inherent kind of grind. Yeah. Because like, that is, uh, the replicant's life is a microcosm of, you know, most of our lives. Like, most people's lives is this dedicated to only being able to work and just trying to survive in this very brief amount of time that we have. And I just, I, yeah, I just think it's, I, it's also like a really cool movie. I do think, I think that one of the biggest things that stands out to me in 2022 contextually and with much more understanding that I have and brilliant work done by many other people is just like, it definitely plays into the, the fear that America had of kind of like Japan as this, Oh, big all time. encroaching big time, big force, time, big time. and I think it's hard. That to, was it's hard to disconnect from that notion of it. Like that is what the explanation of the the way that Neo LA looks, you know, is is very much based in that. But I do also think it has a lot to offer and is is really interesting, even in spite of I'm, the flaws. I'm glad you brought that up because I feel very much the same way. Uh, very complicated about the depiction of the influence of Japanese culture, Asian culture, East Asian culture on uh, Neo-LA. First of all, I feel compelled to note that uh, the movie came out uh, June 25th, 1982, and only six days before this, Asian-American Vincent Chin was uh, murdered in Detroit with a baseball bat. Uh, and his two killers were auto workers who were, uh, you know, 
they, one of the reasons they cited for for why they um, flew off the handle and killed this guy with a baseball bat was that they were angry over Japanese cars mm-hmm. being imported into the U.S., undercutting American uh, the American auto industry and leading to uh, one of these killers losing their job. By the way, the men were fined $3,000 and did no jail time. Um, although later in this, in a civil court case, there was a, a larger monetary settlement. So this was this fear of a rising Japan is like all over every movie from the 80s. There's a mm-hmm. there's a you know, you could I could go through the litany of movies that that have this as an influence. But you really see it throughout the 80s ending with I think Rising Sun is the last one like early 90s where I really felt like, oh, here's another last one of these movies. But I will say here, the other thing about it is, and there is a lot of appropriation here, but also this is like one of the very few overt depictions of East Asia, particularly Japan, as a cultural power. Mm-hmm. Like as at like it's not just that Deckard is like eating noodles. He's eating noodles at a stand that is worked by, uh, you know, Asian people. Uh, there's Asian writing there. Everyone around him is Asian. Mm-hmm. It's 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 and it feels in that way because of that. It feels. It's part of what gives the movie its staying power because yeah. it's it, an acknowledgement of of Japanese culture as a worldwide force, something that was not really uh, acknowledged, certainly in the early 80s. Like there was no perception of Japan as a cultural force internationally. Yeah. And here in this movie, you're showing that maybe for the wrong reasons. Well, maybe I was going to say because of fear about Japan. But that's part of what makes it feel like a vital and and current uh, piece of art. It's actually really interesting because it kind of speaks to something that I think comics do a lot as well, which is like intent versus impact. And that can be right. That can be negative. Uh, and positive, like you can try and do something good, but the impact can be negative. Or, as many of these, like Blade Runner, I think a lot about, um, you know, the the original character of Valkyrie in Marvel Comics, who was presented to be this, like, feminist nightmare character, mm-hmm. who was this kind of like, this is what would happen if women were 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 actually yeah. powerful. It would yep. be terrible. Yep. They would be villains. But instead, you created this totally badass character that ended up taking on an importance of its own. And I kind of think Blade Runner fits into that in its own way, though there's been lots of brilliant and very, very legitimate critiques of that aspect. I also think that in its own way, it put a spotlight on certain parts of Asian culture or the idea of a cultural power that had been ignored. And also it has some really iconic Asian actress actors in it. You know, James Hong is in it. One of my all time favorites. Hong, the legend, like, fucking legend, James. You Hong. know, there's a lot of really brilliant actors in this movie. And I just, I think that's a really interesting point that you bring up about that, it, where it's kind of that, like it was meant to be this kind of fear mongering thing, but it has this other element too, that we put the power on by reading it in a certain way. I That's, Exactly. Thank you for uh, for stating in a much more succinct way the thing that I was trying to say. And then finally, the the other. This is part of that conversation, but the other reason that I feel I I have complex feelings sometimes about this movie is 
I love the look of Neo LA. I you know how how drowned in rain it is, how messy it is, how everything is kind of like built on top of each other. But it is it's notable to me that you know you, you, we often talk about uh, Blade Runner's dystopian, a worse future. Like it, what makes it worse? Well, part of what <laughs> clearly the intent was: how do we show that this is worse? We show it messy, uh-huh. we show it dirty, etc. But also, it's like look at all these non-Americans. Yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah. Look at all these works. immigrants. Like, look at yeah, they're not even speaking English, oh, yeah, yeah. and this is terrible, isn't it? Now, again, what's happened is in the intervening years, this is this is actually how we live. This is part of life, and it's not. It's not it, – there are certainly people that take it in a very negative way, but this is just modernity. The irony this as is well is This is an interconnected like world. America is a – you know, they the, – immigration has long been a part of the contemporary idea of America, right? And also um, – yeah, it's just very ironic because the real dystopian aspects of Blade Runner that are legit are like the pollution and the horrific yeah. climate crisis that yes. is very, very real rather than any notion – about that aspect. But yeah, yeah, like you said, I mean, there's so much stuff like, I think this is why we love this stuff is like, we love it and we want to talk about how great it is and also pick it apart. And the reason we pick it apart is because we really enjoy it. Like, this is such a brilliantly made movie, but obviously like, the women in the movie are have a very specific way of being represented. Now, I personally think yep. there's actually a lot of power in like Rachel's story and I love Pris is like yeah. such a brilliant character but they both also fall into tropes this but then again it, it, you know we talk about this lot. this is a film that's meant to fall into tropes like Blade Runner yes. we talk about how it's yes. original and it is original um in a science fiction Hollywood space but it's also uh, a noir Philip Marlowe P.I. story just thrown into this. You have to have this inversion. Rachel is, you know, the femme fatale, but she's not. Pris is actually kind of the femme fatale. Like, it's really, there's a lot of cool ways that it that it plays and subverts those tropes. And I think that's another reason. I mean, when you think about neo-noir, this is the movie you think of. Not like a 2022 noir that's set in the contemporary day. You think of a 1982 movie that was set in a future that we've now passed. <laughs> That's mad. You know, as a as a just kind of a uh, as a needing to get some context to kind of like what sci-fi and future sci-fi was like doing at this time. I also watched uh, Escape from New York, which mm-hmm. is another is like the East Coast version of the future is worse. Uh, also set in you know the late '90s, early 21st century, 1999. Uh, New York has been turned into a, a prison island. Kurt Russell, uh, a you know Snake Plissken, this ex-military uh, guy who has been imprisoned for you know running heists, we are to assume, is then given a one-shot deal uh, to to gain his freedom if he goes into New York and frees the president whose plane has crashed there and has been taken prisoner by the gang the king of New York, the gang leader of New York. That is another movie where, okay, how do we show that New York is worse? All the uh, 
you know, it's overrun with criminals, many of whom are black and brown, and all the female characters are in prison. You don't see any of them outside. And all the people in power who who run the prison and the people in the jet with the president, except for the female terrorist who crashes the plane, are all white guys. I will say, though, John Carpenter does a good job in that movie, right, but, of the, the well, subversion. The subversion, but then the subversion, much like Blade Runner is, it's actually a statement about how uh, America sees certain groups. Mm-hmm. And it's it's basically about how the only way we're comfortable, and when I say we, I say like America. Mm-hmm. The only way, uh, America is most comfortable with people of color in the context of law enforcement, enforcing, exactly, exactly. Their law, enforcing their laws on them. And the same thing with women. Why are all the women in jail? Because America is most comfortable with women when they are imposing their laws mm-hmm. on them. Uh, and in, and it's that kind of thing where, geez, on the, on the surface, I'm not sure how to feel about this. And then you dig down a little bit and you're like, oh, shit, yeah. this is actually and also whether you meant this or not. This is Exactly. Actually and I think that Blade Runner does a similar thing. Like in, in yeah. uh, that's a really great comparison because Escape from New York, you know, the president sucks and all the people yeah, around the president suck. So this high yeah. this hierarchical white American elite is actually also the villain. And I think something that Blade Runner done is, is the notion of like corporations as a villain. You know, Tyrell yeah, is one the, of the villain. So even though they there are these things in there that if you want to read into them that way can seem quite radical. I mean, I've watched, I have I love John Carpenter so much. So I watch Escape from L.A. and um, Escape from New York and, and <laughs> Escape from L.A. actually quite a lot. I love Escape from L.A. Of course I do. Come on, it's me. I love every movie. I love every bad sequel. But like, or sequel that other people think is bad. I think it's good. Both times when I've watched those movies, I'm like, I'd like that. I'm like, just let me live in there. I'm like the demilitarized <laughs> zone where the, it's like lawless and there's no law enforcement. I'm like, please put me in there. Like, let's get to that dystopia because I think it could a good thing could come out of that. <laughs> like, what's your what's your favorite Blade Runner scene? My okay, so I I know that the the common answer is the Roy Batty speech, which is so amazing, and like I said, Rick De Hoya is so great. But my favorite scene is the stuff. I love the noiry stuff between Rachel and and Deckard. I love yeah. Enhance, something I still quote every single day. I mean, that is and whenever one of the most still quietly iconic they scenes. They still yeah, do it, still it now happens. in like every TV show, whether you're watching fucking Stranger Things or NCIS <laughs> or probably like EastEnders. Somebody's enhancing a fucking photo in a way that could never be enhanced. But my favorite stuff is the JF, Sebastian and Pris stuff because I think that stuff is my just God. so moving that stuff just blows my mind every time i watch it it gets me in in a gut punch it ma- it makes me almost so uncomfortable that i don't want to watch it but i warm to it and i i just think it's so good i was about to say the exact same thing where the, their entire I can't call it a meet cute but like when you know when she engineers their uh, bumping into him Everything that follows from there, talking about how old he is, he's got this genetic disorder that's making him age faster and they connect over that. The fact that he – his entire apartment is filled with these robots that are his friends. He doesn't have friends, so he makes them. Uh, The fact that they're both weirdly on like the same 
kind of maturity mm-hmm. level, mm-hmm. despite the fact that they are outwardly like adults. One, because Pris is like three and a half or whatever, you know, clearly near her date. And and J.F. Sebastian is just a person who like uh, has been shunned by the world and is operating on intellectual level that doesn't allow him to connect to people. Mm-hmm. It's actually like it's actually heartbreaking. I do have one question, which is like, why the fuck is J.F. Sebastian like boiling six eggs forever on his stove? <laughs> like, He's just a weirdo. That's just like his weirdo <laughs> quirk. You got to I mean, I still say in my house, home again, home again, jiggity jig. That's like a, a classic <laughs> phrase, you know? Yeah, I think that I think that the something that that movie does very well that is very effective is that the the notion of that similarity or blurred line between like the toys that JF has in his house and yeah the replicants like that kind of the replicants are seeking out this humanity but really they're just these these toys you know these these ballerina kind of dolls and Daryl Hannah is so brilliant as Pris I mean Sean Young is also so so wonderful as Rachel you know I I just think that I always remember Pris just made me feel so sad as a little kid. And those kind of yeah. memories really stick with you. You know, you're less bothered about the romance or the this and the that, but but those things that that gut check you, that's really that's really what gets you. Yeah, I'd feel the same way. Just anything about being alone and trying to connect with anyone, literally anyone else about anything. That was the thing that really stood out to me. That and the fact that I don't think I had seen a movie up to that point that had ever like really explored, not that I would have called it a moral question, but the moral question of are, if robots are as smart as us with thoughts like Mm -hmm. us, then are they alive and what is how do we treat them? I, you know, I, 2001, which I maybe had seen around the same time, kind of it's sort of deals more with this. With, though. This definitely has more, more of a, a emotional heart. There, yeah, with Hal is mainly like a psycho, you know, like just like a companion and then a psycho killer. And it's not really until the end where he's like begging for his life, like, Dave, I'm afraid, don't unplug me, where you are like, whoa, oh, mm-hmm. God, what what is this? But Blade Runner is all of that. Uh, and that is something that I could not stop thinking about when I first saw the movie. Yeah. God, if you if we could make like if we can make Robbie the robot or or uh, or Tweety from Buck Rogers, mm-hmm. like then how could you just turn them off? Exactly. Like or R two or like or C three PO. Like why is it, why would it be okay to just turn them off then? Yeah. Uh, and that is something I I this movie. Uh, uh, inspired me to think about, and I have not been able to stop thinking about since. Um, do you have any fa- uh, any other uh, favorite moments? From I mean, the movie? I just the whole movie is is really quite. When you watch it, especially if it's been, I I love to listen to people who are like younger than me talking about it because I feel like it's such a perennial part of like my life that it's almost like a cozy blanket. Like you know, we were to me, this is like. Um, it fits into that like popcorn movie realm, but like an auteur-driven popcorn movie. Like, you know, I would say the first Jurassic Park fits into that, though it's definitely more on the popcorn side of the spectrum. But, you know, E.T., definitely Jaws, movies where there's a lot of moments where I, I saw Jaws on the beach in, in Long Beach, which was just brilliant. But like, 
I've seen that movie so many times, but I was thinking when I was on the beach, I was like, there's a lot of kids there, you know, there's a lot of families, it's free screening. And there's a good like 25 minutes of them just like getting drunk and singing sea shanties. And I was like, how is this the movie that made a blockbuster summer be a thing, you know? So I think that this fits into that realm for me where there's just so much that I like about it and watching it is kind of like a, it's just a comfort thing at this point. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, there was a lot of other movies that in my grand scheme of movies, I I would place higher than Blade Runner now, probably most, a lot of, to do with the closeness I have to the movie. But like, I was not at all surprised this was the movie that our very clever listeners picked because this is the iconic. There's so many movies from 1982, but this is that movie that has taken on this legacy. I think you could very easily argue it's the most influential. Like, but you know, there's any number of interviews with uh, filmmakers, Christopher Nolan, Mm -hmm. et cetera, who have said, oh, Blade Runner, that really inspired the kind of, uh, look and feel of what yeah. Everyone to wants do. to make their own Blade Runner. Yeah. Um, with that, we now we must now bring in super producer Saul, who loves this movie and wants to talk about uh, uh, so, Saul his feelings about Blade Runner. Yeah, Saul has some of the Saul has some very insightful takes on why the movie has had the legacy it has on like a thematic level and emotional level and and yeah and i'm just i'm really excited for him to dig into them well thank you for that uh welcome i mean it's a uh, the legacy of blade runner i think is like as you guys have alluded to or talked about a lot it's like really complicated it's like it's not a flawless movie but again like what movie is Mm -hmm. it's like uh to paraphrase gaff it's like who you know she can't live, but who does? Like who really does? Who really does? Right, like, and and I, you know, I think to me, like the, I'm a person who really believes in like loving something, flaws and all. Like that's just part of art. And uh, I think Blade Runner is a movie that really has that quality of like you. I like is Rick Deckard kind of like a passive, weirdly like kind of a creep? Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Is Roy Batty the true anti-villain hero of the film? Like a hundred percent. Like is it? Are there a lot of strange, like, religious iconography that somehow, like, fit but don't fit? And you're kind of like, why is he misquoting William Blake all of a sudden? <laughs> like, it's a really random thing, and yet it, it works, and it's and it's stagey. And, uh, you know, like, but, like, one thing I love about Blade Runner, like, I have a very personal connection, like, like Rosie does to the movie. Like, I think the first time I saw it was, like, maybe when I was, like, nine or ten. And at the same time, my grandfather was you know, getting diagnosed with dementia Mm -hmm. right around that time. And I think the first time, as Jason said, as you watch it, you don't, you don't know what it's fucking about. It's just like, it's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's hovercrafts. It's like shadows. There's cigarettes. People are staring like longingly at cameras. (laughs) And you're just kind of like, Whoa, what is, what is this? But watching it over and over again, over the nine years or so that my grandfather basically went from vitality to husk of himself something about that like has just stayed with me about the movie Blade Runner and I think the reason and it did I didn't even realize it until I just revisited it for this episode and rewatched it again for like the dozenth half dozenth you know whatever time was just like it's a movie unlike a lot of movies that like to me like really centers memory mm-hmm. and dementia is like watching my grandfather lose his memory 
and, and and seeing that memory was such a core part of him and a core part of everybody. Like, it's like, that's who we are. Like those experiences. Yeah. One of the, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say and losing it, like watching my grandfather lose it. And then to see these characters, whether they're human or replicant Mm -hmm. and like talk about memories or like have these photographs and photographs are a big thing for me, like artifacts. Like we talk about the artifact era of the MCU. And to me, like Blade Runner is a movie that understands like the physical artifacts that we carry or like the tokens that we keep Mm -hmm. with us to memorialize um, the past and the the forgotten or not forgotten. And um, something about it touches me on that way, about the way it centers memory uh, and for, for all of the characters and the, the things that they experience. Uh, let's talk about, you mentioned Deckard being a little bit of a creep. Um, oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's impossible to not note in the light of 2022 uh, the scene where he and Rachel have it out in his apartment. He's, you know, she knows now that she is a replicant. Uh, um, she's trying to flee, um, but he keeps her from leaving and doesn't attack her, but it's very clear that he keeps her from leaving. Like mm-hmm. she wants to yeah. leave and he doesn't let her. Now, on the one hand, it's creepy. There's another reading which I want to run by you, which I don't know if I believe in, but obviously there's this big question of whether Deckard is a replicant mm-hmm. and he just – we had just seen him reel off multiple memories that Rachel had never told anyone mm-hmm. about that he knew about. Um, is there a way to read this scene as I, Deckard, have just looked into this replicant's files. Mm. I know about her memories. I know how she's going to react. And I know that this is not crossing a line. I wonder, I I think it's actually a very prescient Blade Runner moment because I think that you could read it as like, um, if he is a replicant, which I think all three of us are on that side of like a a big conversation we still have today about the notion of um, technology taking on the the personality traits and the the bigotry and the beliefs of the people who created it. So I kind of always feel like he's misogynistic or he's not afraid of being violent to women because that's who programmed him. You got to do what you need to do. You got to kill someone that to me, I, I kind of, I kind of like that reading where it's not even a conscious decision. It's just kind of, that's how he was programmed. I mean, in the same way that Pris says, I think, therefore, I am. Does she know what she's talking about? Does she know where that quote comes from? She's just doing the thing that she's heard because that's what you do. Mm-hmm. That's the information she's been given. Um, it's a very similar thing to way to read that. Yeah. To me, though, like that's the critical part of it. Like you said, like Pris is doing what she's been told or what she's seen or or, or, or understood from from her surroundings. Like, that's just what being a human yeah, is, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's what that's, kids there's, do. There's no, there's no difference between that and a replicant. Like, Rosie, you mentioned, like, we're all on the same side as Deckard replicant. And, like, if you pressed me, I would say, yes, Deckard <laughs> is a replicant. Like, I, I I believe that and agree that. But I actually think it's kind of a trick question. Yeah. Like, I don't think it actually matters. And the fact that we ask, is he a replicant or a human, is... That's the is point. A, ...is a trick question. It's the point. Like, the fact that we're asking is because we're missing something critical, which is that there is no difference. Mm-hmm. They're, they are the same thing just at radically different points in their life like i i wrote up a, a long set of docs for this conversation thinking about the movie and like there are three preoccupations i think the movie has for me at least when i watch it and it's memory time and aspiration and it's like the characters are obsessed with memory and thinking about 
the past and and having these memories and and visual memory particularly comes up all the time. The, the replicants are always killing people by plugging in their eyes. It's like that's that's for whatever reason like one of the weirdest ways of killing a person. <laughs> but this is how they kill people. Is just let me just plug your eyes out. Um, and time, like they're always talking about time. Time to die. I need like got to find more time. It's about incept dates, but death. And it's like if you knew when you were gonna die, if you knew your incept date, like or or the end point, the way that these replicants know are, are trying to find out. Wouldn't you want to know? Wouldn't we all ask? Also as well, I think all humans do live that way. Like we only, even though we have a, a, you know, however much time we have, we don't know how much time we have. We just know it's limited. There's no way that that ends. And I think in that way, that and the aspect of memory as a key tenant of humanity, I think both of those things push that notion of the point of that replicants and humans are, are very similar. Yeah, and world. it's to that to to your point about like um we you said like you have you have a limited amount of time you have to live knowing that you have a limited amount of time that's aspiration that's carpe diem like in some ways like is Roy Batty just like carpe dming the shit out of <laughs> like what he's doing like it's just seize the day and mm-hmm. he's just he's got only so much time and you see that at the end when he's fist he's like literally I'm gonna stick a nail in my fist also nice little Jesus reference but <laughs> he's gonna stick a nail in his fist because he. He only has so much time and he's just trying to make it count. And, you know, like, I, I think, again, flaws and all with the movie. And I, I, I fully see, like, there's so many problems with the movie. And, like, you know, continuity errors, I think, are, like, the least of the Yeah, issues. for sure. I, but, I never noticed them I'm not, until I'm not a plot they hole. started getting fixed. I, I've I never didn't notice any of them. Or a con- I, I like to notice a funny I continuity mean, error, but generally I'm going to go with the flow, go with the vibe of the movie. And if it yeah, doesn't yeah, take yeah. away from that, that's not something that I tend to notice. Let's let's um, end with finally why we believe Deckard is a replicant. On the pro side, we have the unicorn scene. On the con side, we have that all the replicants are super fucking strong and Deckard is just a fucking guy. What's up? Why do we believe that Deckard is a replicant, Saul? Yeah, 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 Saul. And talk about it in the context of like, I like this notion where it doesn't matter. So why does it matter to people that he is? Or why does it matter to that question that he actually is? I think if I was pressed again, like I would say Deckard is a replicant. Like, why does it matter People ask the question because you want to create some, I think it's natural to create some kind of distinguishing characteristics between people. Like this is what we do. It's like you kind of have implicit biases that you just sort of draw. And I think, uh, I don't know, in my mind, people create a distinguishing thing. And yes, is Deckard super strong? No, but like he fucking, he does manage to kill all of them. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I mean, Roy Bra- Batty does sort of die on his own. Like, <laughs> He's got like the I Batman guess, Joker uh, death. It's like, it is well, his he fault, doesn't right. actually, it isn't his fault. Like, yeah. I mean, he doesn't kill, he doesn't kill Leon either. Yeah. Rachel, Rachel handles that job, which is like, I mean, I don't know. I just think like, is Deckard a replicant? Yes. But do I care? Like, not really. Like, I'll be honest. Like, that's not a question I have ever really thought about in, in the sense that like, I, I've thought that was just a given. And like, to me, the real important question is not like, is he a replicant? But like, why are we even asking if he's a replicant? Like, should it matter? I don't. I don't think it really does. I think, I think, it's, well, I think it's one of those I, interesting things where it's like it does and it doesn't. In that way. it's like Schrodinger's replicant. Like to understand, <laughs> it's like to understand the movie and care about it, you have to ask the question. I believe he is. I always thought 
ever since I was a kid, I just thought that was the movie. And it was really shocking to me when I kind of realized that wasn't the text of the movie. Because I just yeah. thought, I, I think this is an empathy thing. Uh, and I think I didn't realize as a kid, but like I was wondering, like, well, why would a human kill them? Like, I just didn't really understand. Yeah. I knew humans wanted to kill them, but wouldn't you have that choice to not? You know, to me, I think the reason, I think the the reason why, the biggest argument for why Deckard is a replicant, aside from the proof, which I feel like in 2007, Final Cut is pretty succinctly like he is. I just think it's the narrative option that has the most tragedy and a very tragic story. I think it's... yeah. Like Jason said, it's actually incredibly cruel because he's not the smartest or fastest. He's not the newest. And he has, like every other replicant, he has a notion that he has existed for a certain amount of time. We don't know. For all we know, he literally just woke up that first moment that we saw him. That's when he got... And everyone around him just has to act like it because they know what his skills are. I think that is incredibly sad in like the best bleak blade run away and i think that's why for me even if ridley scott came out and was like he's not a replicant he was never meant to be a replicant i'd be like cool this is just this is just yeah i mean you know i'm like this is just my head canon like and that works for me as well like my my read of the story that's what makes it work for me is is the sadness of that and the hope that maybe him and rachel find some connection in this unexpected like reveals of their lives or whatever here is here is why I believe that Deckard is a replicant. One, the unicorn, obviously. And then two, although that then gets us into how did Gaff know? How does he seen the file? Like how do you blah blah blah? Whatever. We can figure that out later. <laughs> but the the real the real to me the real proof is that in this society, replicants do all the hard work. They mm. do all the dangerous shit. They <laughs> are they are the ones sent to the mines. They are the ones sent off world to go work like fucking next to the sun. Yeah, they're the ones doing they're sex the work. Ones who, they are the ones who do sex work. They are the ones who do the dangerous shit. It's not the fucking lieutenant mm-hmm, or Gaff mm-hmm. or anybody that goes and chases the replicants. Why would they do it? Yeah, it's too dangerous. that's actually get such the a replicant, good point. Just the get economy. Get the replicant to yeah. go do the dangerous shit. That's why I believe he's a replicant. And as to why does it matter, I agree and I, like Rosie, I agree and I disagree. I think it, it doesn't matter in the sense that everybody in this story is alive and is a conscious being. It matters in the sense that, like you mentioned, Saul, that like you have to accept this movie, warts and all. I think we, in a conversation about like what makes a living thinking being a living thinking being, you have to also, for me, I also have to accept like the human state warts and all and i think an absolutely essential part of being a a person is who's like me and who is not like me are they part of our group or are they part of not are they not part of our group are they human or are they not human are they from here or are they not from here are they american or are they not american and i think that question is deckard like us or is he not like us is mm. he like them or is he like us is an essential question because that's an essentially human question that is both extremely dark and destructive and is also like extremely welcoming when you decide that, hey, we are all, uh, yes, 
we are all thinking beings and we are all the same. We are, there's something universal going on here. But I think that that desire to exclude as much as include is just part of what drives us. And I think that's why it's important. When I was talking about biases earlier, that's I think that's what I mean. Mm-hmm. It's like the biases people have towards others, the default is asking those questions. And I, again, I guess maybe this is more of a, uh, not deeper philosophical question. You would say like, this is what humans do. And I agree with that. But I guess like a, the next level down is like, well, why do we have to do that? Like, is there a way to not do that? Should should we, should we is there some way like, you know, we like haven't to, figured it out yet. Yeah, we haven't figured it out I, yet. No, no, of course I, I not. Also, no, yeah, no, and we're certainly not going to figure it out in the, this episode of X-Ray Nah, Vision, but you but know I'm what? Just I like, think you're right. And I think that that actually might be the secret of the true dystopian nature of Blade Runner is that instead of having the time and the space to wonder about that question, the movie just tells you there is a difference and that's what matters and everyone perceives it that way. I think that's the difference between like a dystopian story and like a utopian story where a vision of a utopian future would imagine and ask that question of why and and why, who, who were the ones who made us ask that question? What is the nature of society that makes you have to ask, is it us or is it them? I think that's that big difference. And that's another part of that power, that dystopian, like bleak power of Blade Runner, is it's more of just a, a statement on that factor, the, the, the people who are the workers, the people who suffer and they are the other, you know, that's, that's like a, such a real world tragedy. Yeah. Well, Saul, thanks so much for joining this conversation. We're going to do more stuff like this where we uh, pick different movies, different shows, different things to talk about as, you know, as time allows in our schedule. Up next, Hive Mind with Miss Marvel showrunner Bisha Ali. Welcome to the Hive Mind where we explore a topic in more detail with the help of expert guests. We are absolutely thrilled to feature an interview between Rosie and Miss Marvel showrunner Bisha Ali. We are so thrilled to welcome to X-Ray Vision the series creator, head writer, and executive producer of Miss Marvel, Bisha K. Ali. Bisha, mm. thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That was a great, like an MC bringing you on stage introduction. I'm very impressed yes. with the energy you brought to that. <laughs> what a treat. Um, so just... Thank you for having me. It's a, such a pleasure. We're such fans of this show. Like, uh, Miss Marvel's such an important character for me. I used to work in a comic shop. Oh, which comic uh, book when shop? In the US or in... Orbital. <gasps> OMG! Yeah. I love yeah, Orbital. the best, you I know? love Orbital. Yeah, that's great. I feel like, I think Orbital is where I first picked up... Um, did I buy it oh, from you? It could have happened. <laughs> I feel like Orbital's where I first picked up... Um, Miss Marvel, the comics, mm-hmm. back in 2014. It was one of the... Uh, I was there a little bit later, but even okay. then... It was still one of the perennial, excuse me, what's a good comic to buy? Yes. It's Miss Marvel. It's volume 100%. one. 100%. So it's I the saga of its day. Right? <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was the first time in a long time that a book took the whole comic book fandom by storm. Everyone wanted to read it. Six, seven reprints, something that barely yeah. happened in those days of the first issue. So what was kind of, this is a great way actually, what was kind of your comic book slash Miss Marvel origin story. That's something we talk about a lot on here. What got you to fall in love with the, with the medium and this character? In terms of the medium, kind of comic books generally, I, I mean, I was, 2014 for me, I was, I don't know, can't even do the math right now. What was that? Six, seven, eight years ago. 
So I yeah. was in my early early mid twenties by then. So in terms of like formation of comic book fandom, I I I used to go to the library and get the comic books out because they weren't really they wouldn't really like age check them the mm-hmm. way that other books kind of like a Hansel library like yeah sure you want to read preacher you nine year old go for it <laughs> so, <laughs> so watchmen here you go indeed like so and also I think my brother was an influence in that as well so he was reading preacher and then he'd finish it and then I'd read it so it was kind of that was part of that time and also I think my mum would like drop us off at the library go do the whatever she needs to do on the high street and that's where we'd be sitting mm-hmm. and reading comic books as well so um preacher was a big one for for me like I read that very far too young swamp thing that I would more run on swamp thing yeah. was just I still have like this yearning for that comic book somehow. There's something about it that's inherently tragic about that character that I just feel a deep affinity to. <laughs> We're truly kindred spirits. I actually have a Swamp Thing tattoo. Oh, really? That's what, I really yeah, was about that's to ask one of my show me in real time. I love that. I like Iconic, iconic influences. No, absolutely. And I think also Sandman, my goodness, like, oof, rough, oof, you know, um, all those <laughs> things are really kind of there in terms of, uh, I, so I was reading those kinds of comics growing up and I wasn't really um, and my mum grew up reading comics she bought comics uh, a lot of DC comics while she was a kid in Pakistan so that was part of her universe as well she'd kind of save up her her pocket money in Pakistan go buy like latest issues of stuff or often kind of old but whenever they came through and she would get them but so comic books have kind of my mom's had a relationship with them I've had my own relationship with them and um so it was always just part of the fabric of the stories I was consuming alongside I was like an indoor kid so a lot of tvs movies books that's really what raised me I would say in a lot of ways um as a kind of fast forward to 2014 um, in when I believe I was standing you know with comics and picked up um issue one because I, was, I used to collect single issues back then I just don't have the emotional energy anymore to collect single <laughs> issues um, but back when I was a single issue collector um uh, that's when I first picked up Miss Marvel and it was such a um I think there's something very classic about what this comic book is but also mm-hmm. incredibly new I think this kind of speaks to what you're saying in terms of its popularity and why it was so kind of beloved at the time especially and certainly now too um but also just the fabric of the artwork felt so rich it felt so detailed there's in jokes in the backgrounds and that's yeah it was incredible there's so much it was so and maybe it's now I'm, I mean now I'm as an adult diagnosed with ADHD there's something so appealing about the level of sensory input that this comic book yeah. is giving you <laughs> and I was like wait, now I'm doing the math in real time with you as I say that I'm like wait that does make a lot of sense um <laughs> so there's something about that that was so it just you just kind of gravitated towards that comic book and I think that's regardless of who you are in terms of your background, then you do add in that additional layer of like, this is a Pakistani second generation immigrant character. And I'm like, oh, that's me. And that's really, <laughs> that's a very visceral reaction as well that I had when I first picked up those comics. So that was really my kind of, that was years before I was even a television writer or um, a TV and film writer, I should say. Um, so then kind of fast forward five years and I'm working in Marvel Studios on the Disney lot in LA. And I'm like, what is my life? Um, and <laughs> realizing that there's a potential for this show that this might be something they're going to be doing and kind of really putting myself mm-hmm. forward and saying, you gotta, you gotta get me in that room. You gotta, you gotta put me in the room with the people who are making those decisions because I want to do this. I really, I feel like I have so much love and respect for those comics and for this character. And I also know how to make television. So I want to do, yeah. I want to be part of this process. That's really my origin story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and then that happened and not only were you in the room, you were, 
leading that room like yeah. Miss Marvel I was became the guy. your ba- you were the guy <laughs> how, how did it feel to become the Miss Marvel guy terrifying absolutely terrifying me um <laughs> a delight it was truly it was truly wonderful I think uh it's a I think once you're in kind of I mean sure it becomes your life like it becomes your day-to-day life and also I was living in LA I'd kind of moved there to work I'd moved there to for, to work on the show that I started working on two years before um which was the first show I worked on in the US, which was Four Weddings and a Funeral. And when I left, the reason I bring this up is when I went, it was kind of, you've got, you've been given this job, you've been given this opportunity to go and kind of do like a build towards the dream that you have of making television and film. I'm going to go. But I also kind of uprooted myself like my, in this mm-hmm. moment. So it weirdly felt, I don't know, I'm not a big destiny person, but there's this weird like feeling of, oh, this was why, this is why I did this. Like, this is yep. what I was building towards. And it kind of, you don't realize it until you're in it. And then suddenly you're like, wait, I'm doing this. And I think that mm-hmm. from this, I'm talking from a very personal perspective in terms of my own experience of life, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah it, felt, um, it felt like an answer to a question I was asking myself um, yeah. that I didn't even know I was asking. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. No, it does. And I mean, I I was working in comic book shops and bars until I moved here when I got to actually become a writer. And now I'm interviewing you, someone else who moved to America about one of my favorite comics that's now become one of my favorite Marvel so shows. There's a the world has a strange way of working. Yeah. And what you seek you is seeking of, you. That's what I'm saying. Right? What you seek is seeking you. <laughs> um what, something you touched on about your mom's love of comics and your love, it kind of speaks to one of the things that me and Jason and, and the whole crew here just loved about Miss Marvel, which was this this intergenerational hero's journey yes. of finding connection between these these women in this family. So could you talk a little bit about building that in and why it was so important to Kamala's journey. Yeah, it's something that I think um, we're really hungering for, this this idea that mm-hmm. her, her powers, and, and I mean this beyond just the physical manifestation of her powers, I mean also the emotional kind of point that she has to get to in order to be able to wield them, um, are rooted in these four generations of women. And her superpower yeah. is that she's not just by herself, she's with all of these women. And I think that felt so clear to us. Like as the more we talked about what we wanted to do with the show and the fact that we're kind of breaking a television show that's going to set her up to be match ready for whatever's going to happen to her next. Mm -hmm. It's a different arc. It's a very specific journey she has to go on. And what felt important to us was not this narrative, a narrative about um, who am I versus uh, the world that's going to marginalize me, that that wasn't the focus of it. It was really Mm -hmm. in the us versus them of it all what does us mean? Like, what do I look at when I say mm-hmm. the word us? And what is that really? What are the conversations that I have not had in my own home that I wish I'd had? Or that some of the other writers in the rooms who are from a similar background, what are the things that we're scared to touch, that we're scared to look at, that feel too painful, that feel too much or too big? And that, oh my God, I wish that we could have had that kind of healing journey for ourselves. And yeah, I felt really, I felt, I can't say this for everybody, but I felt really scared. I was like, I'm scared that we're going down this route. And I'm really open mm-hmm. with that with the team as well. I was like, the team being the writers. Um, and for me, I, often the thing happens, I feel scared about something. I'm like, okay, I guess that means I have to do it. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's your body, thing. your mind's telling you this is the right way. Yeah, this is the thingy, Bobby. Um, but no, I think, so that intergenerational piece was so important to us. And the way it was meted out um, and kind of set up across the show is kind of beyond kind of breaking the emotional arc and then ha- informationally, how are we going to get the audience on board with this too, was that we're experiencing it all through Kamala's perspective. And that was all really, mm-hmm. really important throughout the construction of 
every element of this was that everything we're experiencing, we're seeing it through Kamala's eyes and we're seeing her internal world, her psychology, literally in the environment around her. You could see it. And that was so important. I was so with this character. And that's the only way we could get away with the information that we need to share because she's learning it in real time too. She's mm-hmm. hearing these stories, snippets of them, things that she doesn't fully understand. She's seeing the impact on her mother. Her mother doesn't want to speak about Aisha. She's then going in another more information. Her grandmother, Sana, she's got a different way of dealing with this trauma that's kind of affected all of them in that she's so expressive about it. She's doing artwork about mm-hmm. it. She's spoken about it so much that it's her, her own daughter so she Kamala is going back through these generations before she's even going literally back she's emotionally uh-huh. going back through these generations and learning about this in real time just as the audience is so I'm, I like how that played out <laughs> yeah I thought that. it was I thought <laughs> I thought it was wonderful another thing I absolutely loved about it was the end game of it was acceptance and support and also then you know Maniba becoming a co-conspirator yeah. in Miss Marvel's journey that to me to see them be proud and it not be a place of conflict or a secret identity or a lie that has to be held that mm-hmm. tears apart a family that was very powerful and something I think is missing in a lot of superhero I think stories. it's what makes her unique right is that her family mm-hmm. they are with her like that felt really yeah. important to us of like that's what makes her unique in the MCU in the cinematic universe and it's also she's literally wearing symbols of their love as she goes out to be yeah. a superhero every single kind of family she's got from Bruno who's a kind of family too um, to the Red Daggers who are part of her history and her yeah. family as well so she's literally wearing that on her every day and whatever she's doing going forward all those symbols exist and they're there now for good and we're so excited about the fact that <laughs> she's literally wearing the fabric of like the love of the people around her as she goes into whatever adventures are next and that was so satisfying to be able to land it and you're exactly right that the bearing witness to other people's the people in our family's truth, whether we can fully understand it, whether we can um, mm-hmm. have been there, but we just being able to, and I mean, literally her powers are about uh, a physical manifestation of like hard light. Like she's shining light yeah. on truth. Like that's clearly what's happening in that episode. And there's something about that that felt so important. It felt like um, um, if we're going to go to something that's dark as what happened in partition, so complicated and violent and horrific, it has to kind of be from a place of, understanding it has to be from a place of compassion Mm -hmm. it has to be from a place of she's learning about how to look in that episode um and then she immediately applies it she Mm -hmm. sees it she then has empathy for Najma when she comes back moments later yeah she her first tactic with Cameron is to talk him down like she wants to talk Mm -hmm. to him when she encompasses him she wants to talk to him and she her first instinct is always hang on can we like talk about how you're feeling right now because I'm happy to be a witness to it um so her powers are always defensive but her ultimate power who she is is her ultimate power and I think that's more maturing over the course of the show I love that and like to speak a little bit to to the partition arc some I I love the quote that you gave I think it was in an interview to Variety where you talked about canonizing partition and as part of history in the MCU like Mm -hmm. the World War II exists here why can't this so could you talk a little bit yeah (laughs) you did it the whole quote is incredibly smart and like slick I was like well this one's really good but yeah could you talk a little bit about building in partition and also uh, I loved the reading list you guys made. I thought that was such a brilliant asset to kind of expand the the story of the show. I think um, kind of building I, the honestly the torture of the past six weeks has been has been not being able to talk about everything. <laughs> so it's really uh-huh. exciting that I finally get to say it all because I remember even early doors when we just mentioned partition around the dinner table and the, some of the responses on especially people affected by partition was like I can't believe that we're even hearing the word partition in yeah. a Marvel show and I was like just you 
wait, buddy. Just you wait. <laughs> that, was really, um, that was kind of hard for us because we were like, I, and it kind of was um, gratifying as we went along to be like, okay, yeah, we did. We were right. This is good. <laughs> this is the plan. This is our sharing of what was hurting us and what we wish we could address in some way. There was a value mm-hmm. to it because we were seeing in real time other people also experiencing that. And that was very gratifying for us to watch. Um, but in terms of how we handled it, our approach was never to, um, we had to simplify in terms of expressing what happened. But let's be clear, it's so complicated. It's so complex. Yeah. And it's also much more violent than what we portrayed in our show. Um, but there was, there was no way for us to encapsulate the full violence of it. We bring it up in, in audio, we describe it. And then the violence mm-hmm. that we see in the show, like that it's enacted, is between our characters that we put into the situation. So it's between Najma and Aisha. And if hopefully there's some element of just the grief of that moment in terms of our storytelling might reflect some of the grief of some of the pain of this, like an echo of mm-hmm. what the actual pain of this is. But that was the only piece of violence that we wanted to put in. And we wanted to be very mindful of how we handled actually portraying it on screen. I think part of the yeah. kind of great thing we did, great thing that everyone did, was that we had Charmaine Obechino directing. So she spent so much of her life collecting um, stories from partition oral histories. And she really constructed that sequence at the end of episode four when Kamala's on the train platform and she's hearing these different conversations. Those are real conversations that she's collected from wow. that. And the shots that you're seeing, um, the woman being carried by two men, the family embracing and leaving each other and the way that the trains look and people throwing their belongings up and being able to get on, those are constructed from photographs from that time. Mm -hmm. So there was so much care. We all approached this with such reverence um, and with such respect for what happened. Um, Well, respect is the weird way of framing it, but I think you understand what I'm getting at. But um, that was really important to us. And I think I feel really grateful that we had Charmin on board to direct the Pakistan episodes. Yeah. Something else that I found that you guys dealt with that, felt very radical and, and underseen. It's like a lot of stories about powered people and specifically mutants, which will become later more prominent, are about this notion of like analogous oppression. So the yeah. X-Men's like, look at these people, they're being oppressed. But the first group of X-Men are like white people, right? But they're being oppressed because of their powers. Something Miss Marvel does, especially by the time we get to the finale, it makes that oppression text it's not just about a powered person. It's look at how this technique that is about finding powered people immediately becomes about over-policing Muslims, yeah. over-policing brown people. I just thought that was really cool. So could you oh, speak a little you. bit about the Department of Damage Control's role and the importance of reflecting that real-world oppression alongside yeah. sowing the seeds for oppression of powered people? Yeah, so actually, I will say, to be completely honest, the idea of sowing the seeds of oppression of powered people as a based on mutants was like not of interest to me not in terms of like it wasn't interesting <laughs> but I mean like wasn't well yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't what, what we you were, were meant to be doing we were like this is what we're doing which is very clear <laughs> not even an analogy to be frank like we're stating no it, it's right? just true it's just That's what, what it I is like. you know? um and so uh that our approach is always that and it wasn't always damage control that was the oppressive force at different points mm. we had written versions where there was real people <laughs> looking yeah agencies and that kind of thing and then as kind of you kind of developed the shows with Marvel there's this kind of searching for the interconnectivity and damage control was such a good um existing thing that we recognize elements mm-hmm. of and that we could see an element of like what their reach is and we knew at, after a certain point um in the kind of development process we knew that they appear somewhere else You've see, we've seen it in trailers for other shows shall we say so yeah. they exist and that's real in the MCU so it's just another layer of like juicy interconnectivity and also mm-hmm. our approach to that story um 
I think hinged on Diva going rogue because I don't know that we yeah. can paint all of damage control. Like we don't, I think as soon as yeah. we do that, we kind of limit possibilities for other storytelling. And I didn't want to do that for other people. And certainly that's not helpful to the MCU as a whole. So, but uh, M- Divas is doing the work <laughs> of being yeah. that oppressive force that's specifically targeting this community. And that she's like, she's just hellbent on it. She's an evil lady. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, uh, that was always important to us, whether it was going to be through damage control or a different kind of um, government agency or oppressive force that was built mm-hmm. in from the start of like, well, what happens when someone who's a young brown woman becomes hyper visible? How do you get treated? Exactly. Because it isn't how it would be for anybody else. It, it won't mm-hmm. be how it is for Spidey. Well, completely for different reasons. It'll be a different yeah. approach. Um, and it won't be how it is for Captain Marvel in terms of mm-hmm. so um that's also part of the reality check for Kamala, right? So when yeah damage control, when Divas first comes into the Masjid and Naki is so like frustrated by it, and also Naki gets to explain it to some of the audience who might not be picking up on what we're doing um in Kamala's bedroom, we're seeing that, oh, so being even though I'm good and I want to do good things and I want to be a superhero for us, the impact of me existing, which is out of my control, the fact that I exist in the body that I was born into, forget with powers is going to affect people's perception and that's just the reality that muslims and brown people have to live with and so how do we talk about that in a way that feels meaningful in this and i think we came to the meaningful answer for us is you got to have each other's backs we're a community yeah together so and i think that was just so powerful and kind of like so something that I thought was really interesting was um sana armanat gave gave an interview today about um how in the comics Kamala was always meant to be a mutant, which was actually something that a lot of fans had assumed during the publishing time. So I was kind of wondering, how does it feel for you? I I can imagine how much this has changed and and how that moment came about is not something that's particularly like out there to talk about. But how did it feel to you to be able to reveal that Kamala has a mutation and is back in that space? Yeah. Yeah. As she was originally envisioned. I think uh, it's interesting from like a, from a nerd POV, like, holy shit. (laughs) So exciting. (laughs) Right? Yeah, completely. I was having a meltdown, especially when you, like the way it's done in the show, because that was the, that music cue was Laura Carmen and Sonam very cleverly. The fact that we got to play that sound, like I, the, (laughs) the X-Men theme from the, from the the show I can't tell you like I'm not even talking about my time working at Marvel I'm talking about before like that yes. song I like scream out loud like for fun like it's something I've seen everyone to my, does it's yeah, classic exactly. it's iconic so the fact that it's in this and the fact that we're introducing this huge exciting new part of the MCU in this kind of actually softest of ways which is kind of the yeah. Kamala-iest way to do this um, it is with her quip as well it's just another label yeah I thought that was so good and it sets up so much. And then obviously you get to have immediately after that, which I could not believe, we get this huge moment, which goes back to some classic Captain Marvel lore with potentially the bangle being similar to the Negabands and and Kamala disappearing. You're zipping your lips, of course, (laughs) and Carol's. But how much fun was it to establish this connection with Carol and Kamala that we've never seen? In that final moment, that for me, like I didn't write that scene. That kind of got put in in the in the end game. That was end game in the later later <laughs> down the line because I think also you've got to bear in mind these shows like the the schedule of when they're going out is changing all the time. Yes. And like what exists, what doesn't exist, what's in the public knowledge, what is it? So all of that, those kind of pieces are often a moving part. But to see it all together and to see that scene, and now that I kind of yeah. know some elements of what's going to come, it's yeah, it's exciting. It's really exciting. 
It's thrilling. It must have been really fun. And how do you feel now that your whole baby is out there? This is not people reacting to one episode anymore as it comes out. This is the whole show is out there as it exists. How does it feel to you? And how does it feel to see how much it means to people? Um, I think about the the how much it means to people. Yeah, it's hard. I think it no, no I think the in the internet age, I don't know that any human brain is capable of computing like the amount <laughs> of feedback not. like I don't know that's natural like a human like our computer good bad so um that's that's something that I find hard also I, I mean I've got my own stuff to deal with with my brain but the the it's 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 bizarre it's a really bizarre feeling I think um I also feel just really tired isn't it like I just feel so <laughs> putting out a show in the global pandemic about partition, about the first yeah. MCU Muslim female He's, teenage superhero. Yeah. I mean, that's tiring. It's a, lot. it's a lot of stuff. I think also, you know, if I can kind of put the MCU of it down for a second, but like it took a lot of yeah. bravery on the part of the writers. It took a lot of vulnerability and mm-hmm. trusting each other to go where we went. And there's no response, negative or positive, that can kind of validate or uh, I don't know I don't there's nothing that's going to kind of cushion that but I feel like when the show was coming out I think we all yeah I can't speak for the other writers but I know I said was feeling really vulnerable um and that's mm-hmm. any art putting any art into the world that you've been part of is that but I think that element in particular because I think yeah it's just a really tender place to go and I mean tender in a gentle way but I also mean like a tender wound <laughs> so that's um yeah that was an interesting experience I've learned a lot from that experience a lot about putting yourself out there and kind of just chasing mm-hmm. the thing that scares you but it feels weird and good and great and yay <laughs> that's the summary <laughs> I love that weird and good and great and yay yeah. that's so brilliant I could literally talk to you about this all day <laughs> but I appreciate you taking this time out so that we could have this chat it's so wonderful to meet you and to have that's you on here to you too. Um, and like where can people find you if they want to follow more of your work oh, or gosh. see more stuff that you've done I don't know man internet like I'll find I don't know. It. I'll hide <laughs> I'll in, I'm it in the show. I'm, I'm quite enjoying hiding in a hole and kind of, oh, I'll just retweet some stuff and then disappear. Yeah, just um, watch Ms. Marvel. Yeah, just watch the and show. And support Bisha. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you. You're very sweet, Rosie. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us, Bisha. Up next, Nerd Out. Today's Nerd Out, where you tell us what you love and why Francis pitches on RuPaul's Drag Race. What's up, X-Ray Vision Pod? It's Francis. The first half of my year has been a deep dive into RuPaul's Drag Race. No, really. I've watched 13 of the 14 original seasons, six and a half all-star seasons, the UK seasons, including UK versus the world, Canada seasons, and Down Under, and a few podcasts, web series, and music by some of my favorite queens along the way. I knew I'd love it, but I didn't get into it until late January this year at the suggestion of a close friend. Well, everyone who told me I'd like it, you were absolutely correct. With the recent LGBTQIA plus attacks by the right, especially here in my home state of Texas, I thought now was a great time to let X-Ray Vision pod followers know that Drag Race absolutely lives up to the hype. As our Lord and Savior RuPaul says, we're all born naked and the rest is drag. So while I highly doubt the Texas legislators will be able to legally define what a drag show is and pass laws preventing children from attending, I want to encourage everyone to give Drag Race a chance. Personal favorite seasons are five, six, and seven of the original or All-Stars two or seven 
or at least find a local drag show and support these wonderful performers teaching everyone how to love ourselves by loving themselves. On the horizon, Canada's Drag Race Season 3 kicks off in mid-July on WOW Presents Plus in the U.S., and a Queen of Queens will soon be chosen on All-Stars 7 All Winners, currently on Paramount+. Plus. And to quote Mama Rue again, if you can't love yourself, how in the hell are you going to love somebody else? Can I get an amen? Thanks, Francis, for submitting. If you want to be featured and we want you to be featured, please send your nerd out pitch to x-ray at crooked.com. Instructions on how to do so are in the show notes. Folks, that's it for our supersized 1982 summer movie edition episode of X-Ray Vision. A big thank you to the number one comics computer, <laughs> Rosie Knight. It's me. I am and a of course, computer. Super, and of course, super producer Saul Rubin for joining us on X-Ray Vision. Rosie, plugs, plugs, plugs. Plug your stuff. Yes. Uh, if you're at San Diego Comic-Con and you listen to this before 4 p.m., come and see me on that Godzilla panel, room four. If you're at San Diego Comic-Con and you don't see that, pick up my Den of Geek magazine. It's free. The Den of Geek team will be giving it out. Also, if you see me, feel free to say hello. I will probably have a zine on me. I'll be staying away from people in a safe manner, but if I am out and about, I will make sure I have a zine. I'm always happy to say hello. You can follow me, uh, Rosie Marks, on Instagram and Letterboxd. And obviously hear me here on Extra Vision with my brilliant co-host, Jason. (laughs) Folks! X-Ray Vision has a new home on YouTube. The Take Line channel is now dedicated to all things X-Ray Vision, and the Take Line Twitter page is now going to be dedicated to all things X-Ray Vision, so go check us out on XRV Pod. We also have a Discord. Come join the community. You can find our Discord in the show notes. We're at Comic-Con right now, so come check it out for some potential scoops, and check out YouTube for reactions, recaps, primers, and more. Next week, we will be talking more about everything that happens at Comic-Con over the next few days, if we survive. <laughs> Don't forget, five stars. Every platform. You want to review us? It's got to be the five stars. X-Ray Vision is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin. The show is executive produced by myself and Sandy Gerard. Our editing and sound design is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Dylan Villanueva and Matt DeGroote provide video production support. Alex Relaford handles social media. Thank you, Brian Vasquez, for our theme music. Bye! Bye-bye! Bye-bye!